Dr. Fauci, do you still support funding of the NIH funding of the lab in Wuhan? Senator Paul, with all due respect, you are entire, entirely and completely incorrect that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute Do they fund of Dr. Barrick? We do not fund... Do you fund gain, Dr. Barrick's gain-of-function research? Dr. Barrett does not doing gain-of-function research, and if it is, it's according to the guidelines, and it is being conducted in North Carolina. You don't think inserting a bat virus spike protein that he got from the Wuhan Institute into the SARS virus is gain of function. That is not the minority because at least 200 scientists have signed a statement from the Cambridge Working Group saying that it is gain of function. Well, it is not. And if you look at the grant and you look at the uh, progress reports, it is not gain of function, despite the fact that people tweet that. So do you still support sending money to the Wuhan Virology Institute? We do not send money now to the the Wuhan uh, Virology Institute. support sending money? We did, under your tutelage. We were sending it through EcoHealth. It was a sub-agency. You didn't give money to the Wuhan lab to do gain-of-function research. That is correct. Dr. Fauci, knowing that it is a crime to lie to Congress... Do you wish to retract your statement of May 11th where you claimed that the NIH never funded gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator Paul, I have never lied before the Congress, and I do not retract that statement. This paper that you are referring to was judged by qualified staff up and down the chain as not being gain-of-function. So what was? Saying, let me take, finish. You take an animal virus and you increase its transmissibility to humans. Right. You're saying that's not gain of function. Yeah, that is correct. And and Senator Paul, you do not know what you are talking about, quite frankly. Welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant, independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Saturday, January 13th, 2024. Thank you for joining me today. I have a jam-packed show, a lot to get into. We're going to talk about, to start, in fact, a a very important discussion about the continuation. I mean, a lot of people might not realize that gain-of-function work never actually stopped but the continuation of this work in a really alarming direction that we've been talking about since 2020 and before, I mean, right around 2020 for the most part, which is self-amplifying vaccines, self-amplifying RNA, and self-amplifying RNA platforms. All of this is continuing, and I'm going to go over this to, to, to start on how that is Essentially, not that itself is not gain-of-function research, but how it's being applied in regard to the context of the hypothetical disease X is 100% gain-of-function research. And now that it seems that, I guess, they feel sufficiently removed from this conversation, that it's just going full steam ahead. And the whole thing with Fauci about the, the current definitions, it's always a game of politics and manipul- you know, manipulating the terms, playing on the un- lack of understanding of the average person. So we're going to go over that to begin. 
Uh, and just actually just out right off the opening clip so you guys can see it, of course, don't miss the fact that he says, you know, that he's never lied under oath. And of course, now it comes later where he has does not recall over a hundred times in his recent depositions and, 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 you know, question when they were asking him the important questions. And it's just, I think he's come, become very aware of how clearly he's not complete. Uh, you know, he's accountable at this point more than I think most people in his position usually are. And of course, as well, the gain of function discussion, here's the Ralph Barrick point and many others about the myocarditis induced coronavirus inducing myocarditis research on rabbits. That's gain of function in the labs of China and his own curriculum where you can literally read synthetic coronavirus. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And all, and much of this does intertwine with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But before we get into all this in general, I do have a lot to get into today. We're going to be going over how, like I was saying, to start this inner kind of intersects with the future of where this goes, really what I think has been the plan for a very long time. And, and over actually overlapping that with the particles for humanity conversation that connects with the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation and vaccination tracking on the skin and all these different things that are very real and completely in line with what they're working on right now. But I mean, most people probably still don't realize how, not just you know real in the sense of the plan, but actually in real time being used in most of these cases. We're also going to talk about Palantir and a really alarming kind of evolution of this conversation around artificial intelligence as it connects with warfare, which is always how they're trying. This has been one of my biggest concerns for a long time. And I, we all know this has been a push from DARPA and the, and the military predominantly for a really long time. And I believe it's been used more than we know. But we're going to talk today about both OpenAI, ChatGPT, removing the kind of military warfare weapons ban that they have in their policies and making it very opaque. And I'll tell you why I think that's an opening, intentionally so, to allow the government to act as long as they do in, in a way that they argue is within the law and the terminology they used applies the right way, that they'll be able to allow a loophole for the military to begin publicly using this in regard to warfare. And guess what? We've already seen it. 972 Magazine already discussed the Habsora, it translates to the gospel, artificial intelligence program being used in Gaza by the Israeli government to murder people at a scale we've never seen before. And that's coming from IDF members on the record, telling you that this is, as I've said, taking down buildings just to take down buildings, to shock and awe, to scare, to keep these people in their place, all these different statements that were made most of which shows you that they are using it as a broad justification to pretend that they know they didn't do the wrong thing because the AI said so, even though it's being fed by these very same people. We're not talking about sentient AI here. This is still being fed by the very same people that have a genocidal mindset towards the Palestinians. And now, again, back to the point about Palantir, it turns out Palantir has now publicly decided to take the side of Israel in their open genocide on Gaza, even as the South African genocide, can, or rather the genocide convention at the ICJ put forward by South Africa has very clearly shown that Israel, the only argument they truly have, which we'll touch on today as well, is that first of all, this was so bad that whatever we do doesn't matter or somehow that this doesn't even apply. It, it's, it's flimsy at best. You, everything they laid out is showing you that they don't have an argument to justify or explain or make legal what they're ultimately doing. I think they're truly hoping on the political pressure to make this go away. And a few other points we'll get into in regard to Ukraine. And I have a section that I wanted to go through around Yemen, which does completely tie in with 
I think multiple topics we'll get into today, but obviously in regard to Israel, the United States, and the attempt to bring this into a multi-front war, blaming Iran and everybody else that they've always wanted to blame everything on without evidence, but how obvious it is that what we're seeing play out is a desperate act to avoid accountability. Coming from some of the most powerful people on the planet, which at the very least has to show you that things are shifting. Shift Just because things change don't always mean that it's going to change for the better, but it's an opening. It's a possibility. And I believe that the work we've been doing and a lot of people out there continuing to push back and, and call for accountability and truth have changed quite a bit, especially around this recent topic. So we just need to try to capitalize on that and keep the momentum going. So let's start today again with this point. Actually, oh, I forgot. I wanted to, I included one point that I wanted to start with here that I think is really important that I'm going to follow up on. I reached out to Scott Smith to invite him back on for another interview. I just saw this yesterday. And this is in regard to East Palestine. Now, you guys know we've talked about this at length. And it honestly is one of the most frustrating topics for me out of most we've talked about just because of how egregiously obvious it is. And I don't just mean because of the evidence that we've broken down and the disputing about what it means, but I mean like in, in a, in a court of law being presented the evidence that shows that they lied about what happened and absolutely nothing came about nothing. The fact that they lied about what was actually inside, which was treated vinyl chloride and not regular vinyl chloride. And the fact that the experts said that it was most likely not going to explode. Very, very important information that was left out when Norfolk Southern told the volunteer fire chief that they had to make a decision within 72 hours or whatever the time frame was. And it was, I think it was two or three, I think it was two days. Basically saying that we have to make this decision now or bad things are going to happen and ultimately forced him to make a decision, which he now later looks back and says on the record that he was essentially railroaded, no pun intended. The point is, if they've lied about that and they know they lied about that in order to carry out this action that is one of the most damaging environmental catastrophes that I think, I don't think we even fully come to understand the long-term effects of what happened there, all because... They didn't want to be accountable. They wanted to run right back over the railroad tracks to get the train out of the way, only to dig it back up and deal with this problem. So what the hell actually happened there? What else was on that train? I've been asking this from the beginning. Not to say that that has to even be part of the story. Just what we've proven is enough to show that they should be in prison, including the EPA that still continues to drag its feet, still continues to allow them to ship this material that we've proven has dioxins and many other problems to places that we've proven are incapable of dealing with them. They know all of this. And, the, and not least of which is that to this very day, people are still getting sick. And I can't even wrap my mind. You can't even tell how much this frustrates me. It's such an egregiously obvious story. Now, to add to that, Scott C. Smith, who's been one of the few people out there continuing to test and continuing to find alarming levels of dioxins, He's now apparently being sort of followed and tracked by the EPA. And as he writes, Elon, Joe, he's just trying to get, I guess, people he thinks are big enough. They're most likely not going to listen, Scott. But T-Lab's here for you if you want to reach out. Want to see what is really happening in East Palestine. He says, is the EPA effectively the PR machine for Norfolk Southern and working to violate his constitutional rights, he asks. There's screenshots I'll show you in a second. And it's saying the FOIA lawsuit that he put out that he he foia this information is related to East Palestine and the EPA. It says it seems that the EPA, Barbara McCree, 
the multimedia communications at EPA is coordinating from her EPA email account to get his personal information. And around 120 people at the EPA are monitoring everything he does. Interestingly enough, failing to relay the information that he's showing. So they sure as hell know what he's doing to the point to where they're monitoring what he's doing and then failing to tell anybody else about the findings that are important to the health of the people they pretend they're there to protect. It can't get more ridiculous than that. I shouldn't say that. It always can. But I just can't believe how obvious this is. The EPA is now withholding hundreds of other documents related to his work in East Palestine. And he asks, what is the EPA hiding? Well, I think we know. I don't think the EPA or any of these groups are anything we've ever thought they were. And even if they were, they're definitely not now. Did the EPA, Barbara McCree, cooperate with Norfolk Southern? I can prove that they did. Norfolk Southern's ex-government employee lobbyist in stalking him and harassing him with a subpoena in attempt to silence him and violate his constitutional rights, he asks. We will get the answers, and perhaps he says I should hire private investigators to find out more about Barbara McCree, including her personal address and who she's really connected to. He says, if you truly care about our constitutional rights and freedom of speech, this should horrify you, as without constitutional rights and freedom of speech, there's no democracy in the U.S. Of course, petitioning Elon Musk is probably not the best route, but I don't think everybody fully understands the reality of that. But either way, here's what he has. And there's more in here. I'm hoping to get him on the record to talk about. But all these different people, EPA seems to have, it says 120 people keeping tabs on him. This is included in the email chain around what he's discussing. Remember, this is discussing, as you'll see here, information that he is to this very day revealing. And yet they don't tell anybody else what they're looking at. Says another note on this, at least in East Palestine, Scott Smith entered the auditorium, walked around and talked to nobody. I recognized him and then left last Thursday, the day he claimed that he talked to the EPA, Norfolk Southern. EPA has also not said we would test air filters that we record. So my, the point here is that they're literally amongst themselves debating, disputing what he's arguing, what he's saying publicly without, without failing, mind you, mind you, to relay this kind of information. The fact that he's tested the filters of homes as of like last month, Actually, this was in July of last year, or uh, yeah, last year. But the most recent update, I believe, was was it two months ago? I did a cover uh, update on this. Still finding the same high levels, but this was fourteen thousand percent more dioxins in East Palestine homes compared to controls. Fourteen thousand TCDD being the most deadly thing we know of on the planet. Agent Orange level thing. It's horrifying, and that's what they're finding in people's homes, and they know that, and they don't care. Here's the other one. It says EPA PR discussion discussed their stance on Scott Smith after residents emailed them with concerns about the dioxins he's finding. Scott Smith is testing the water and soil and finding dioxins, which is like Agent Orange. Kids are sick with the nosebleed with nosebleeds and headaches. These families need help. Don't cover it up. If it's safe, go live there. I love and I live in Cleveland, but my heart goes out to them. It says I'm sh I'm sure if you interview the people from East Palestine, they can give you that information. It says I saw his testimony and experience on TV. You know, these are behind the scenes emails. It just breaks my heart for the community that they are being lied to and their sickness continues. He talks about the dioxins he found in his samples. Common sense says these chemicals just don't go away. This one says EPS, EPA is asking for his email address. Please tell us where Scott is located. Please supply the address, city, and state. Thank you. So they are clearly aware of his work. Well, absolutely ignoring the reality of what he's finding. How in the world do you pretend this is an agency that's actually, it, that it believes its mandate is to care about the people while it ignores the findings and simply focuses on the person exposing them? That's a cover-up is what that is. As well as the fact that you need, this is one of the most important parts of this story. 
investigate, and this is what I was just mentioning, investigation found East Palestine controlled burn was unnecessary. That is what the investigation found in the court proceedings. It was unnecessary. There is no accountability, no consequences for these actions. And it wasn't just like a, a casual mistake. Remember, treated vinyl chloride was most likely not going to explode. Alan Shaw knows that, failed to relay that to the fire chief, which then made the decision to do the burn, which is why all of this happened. Now, even if you pretend that was some clumsy series of mistakes, how is it possible that the only people being held accountable or just suffering from it are the people on the ground? It's always the way it works. It is the poor, it is the destitute, or the people that have no voice that get stepped on by people like Alan Shaw, Norfolk Southern, and the EPA. Well, nobody cares about it because two-party politics stop us from paying attention if you're stuck in two-party politics. It just really bothers me. I hope you guys can follow up on this as well. I'm hoping to get Scott back on the show. Now, the part, the, the part about the self-amplifying mRNA vaccines where I was planning on ultimately starting today, this caught my attention when Brooke Jackson shared this uh, a while back. This is on August. CEPI to support development of self-amplifying mRNA vaccine technology for use against disease X. Now, this was essentially brought to my attention again. Um, oh, I forgot who tagged me. And it just reminded me, we, it reminded me of all the work that we had done over the years on the self-amplifying angle to this. And CEPI and the overlap, you know, the, the shifting of money, the funding to all these programs, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, groups like Gavi and the WHO, all of this work is intertwined for a very long time. And what she says here is, meanwhile, members of Congress introduced Disease X Act 2023. Now, remember, we just talked about Disease X that was coming back up in the conversation. So I thought this was very important to kind of revisit. Now, rightly so, Brooke pointed out back then, Disease X Act of 2023. And I really just want people to understand that this is what they're what there's no other way to 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 read what this is saying without the context of gain of function research. Now, funny enough, you still apparently can't find any summary on here, even though this is not new. Usually the summary it's I find it to be very telling, quite honestly. But here's what the text says in general. It was highlighted, but the main point right here, the identification and development of platform manufacturing technologies needed for advanced development and manufacturing of medical countermeasures for viral families, which have significant potential to cause pandemic. Now, the only way you can do that, at least, or if that's even something that's possible in their mindset, dual use technology would be to take these viral families. So like the coronaviruses and ultimately create a platform manufacturing technology that can pump these things out based on the current need. Now, the only way you can do that is by manipulating these things, as they've told you a million times, to find out how they can affect humans or not and create the system to be able to stop that. Hypothetically, should it happen later? They're not aiming this thing at the things we know exist now. That's why it's about disease X. It's the unknown hypothetical. And the crazy thing to me is that it can be so plainly stated and not just in a specific one directional way, as in like, let's find an Ebola vaccine, but that they're making this broad, undefined platform system that we've literally just watched fail. But even more, even larger, even more concerning, especially as we get into the self-amplifying part of it. Advanced research and development of flexible medical countermeasures against priority respiratory virus families and, you know, other viral pathogens. I always love how it can apply to just whatever they want, you know, and other things whatever that could mean going forward with a significant potential to cause a pandemic. 
so they say, with both pathogenic-specific and pathogenic-agnostic approaches. And at the end, it says, and as well, priority virus families and other viral pathogens with a significant potential to cause a pandemic. So whatever, whatever they want it to be. So this is all about the hypothetical. Disease X, remember, that's not a specific thing. That's like saying the you know, sudden infant death syndrome. It, doesn't, it means we don't know what happened, but a kid died and it was sudden. People don't know that still. Or, uh, adult, or what was the other term? It was SIDS and SADS, sudden adult death syndrome. It literally is a catch-all for we don't have a clue what caused the death. That's crazy to me, and people get diagnosed with that. It's ridiculous. In the same sense here, we're talking about the ZX as an unknown hypothetical. So hypothetically, they, they would say COVID-19 was one of these, right? So before COVID-19, that's assuming you even believe it's a real thing, disease X was still like a hypothetical, and then COVID-19 comes along, and that's what, that's what we were talking about. The, hot, the, the thing that will come next that's going to be so serious. Okay, so just understand, when they're aiming something at this, they're not aiming at a pathogen or a specific thing. It is a completely unknown, broad game. So it gives them the opening to do whatever they want. And how are we trusting these people after what actually just happened? And when Fauci getting caught lying on the record around all of this stuff, it's really blowing my mind that we can even be in this direction now, especially as, for instance, we have Sasha Latapova's interview with Taylor about exactly the medical countermeasures DOD overlap that shows you this was always something more nefarious than just some Pfizer-Moderna effort, especially when you find out that people like Robert Langer, the co-founder, scientific co-founder of Moderna, is the person involved with this technology that goes back a hell of a long way and is still currently sprinting forward in ways that would keep you up at night. And we've gone over that in depth. But CEPI, as she points out as well, and this is from August 2023, to support the development of self-amplifying mRNA vaccine technology for use against disease X. So this is where it comes into the idea of the self-amplifying mRNA, or RNA rather. And this is an alarming reality here because what, first of all, let's not forget the self-amplifying, interestingly enough, as far as I understand the research, was the first aspect of this that was discovered, you played with, until they went to the version they claim they used during COVID-19, even though I can show you an older document of Pfizer that lists the BNT2B12 as self-amplifying. Very weird, which is the one they claim is currently used. So I think that there's more to this story than we realize. But ultimately, it comes down to the idea, as I've told you, of something that not just continues to create it, which again, there's the I'll show you the study we've gotten into many times about this, the sustained synthesis of the spike protein. But it's also about the platform concept. And I think this applies more to the idea of having this done in your body, not just training your body to make the one protein they need, but this is more about the idea of like the platform internally to where they can trigger your body system that they've set up to create whatever protein they want in that moment. And this is where this all gets really crazy because it's really one showing you that it's always been gene therapy as anybody with a brain should know by now. And they just didn't want you to be afraid of it. And how in the world, as we're seeing things like cancers explode in kids that we can't recognize, you know, gee, maybe it's the experimental gene therapy we push down people's throats. But this is coming. And again, my point in showing you back to August and even before is that it's already here. Why we would think this is now, this is something, in my opinion, that's already being utilized. Now here, this is uh, from 2020 going all the way back to, I guess, right in the beginning of COVID-19 illusion, disease X, accelerating the development of medical countermeasures for the next pandemic. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation coordinated subject matter experts to create what ultimately was utilized during COVID-19. So just to show you that this is exactly the same thing. And even though so many things were shown to be false 
to be manipulations to not. And even, even if you put all that aside, just wrong. Every choice that was made turned out to make things worse. I don't know how you think that's an accident. And then we're just going to let them do it again. I mean, it seems a little bit ridiculous, right? But I guess most people, the average person goes, well, what else are we going to do? Well, fair enough. But the last thing would be you let the people that failed do the same thing again. Now, this is the National Institute of Health. This goes back to the 2013, where they're literally discussing gain-of-function research as an integral to infectious disease research. And this is Fauci speaking behind this. You can listen to it for yourself. And he's talking about how this applies. Study naturally occurring mutations and their effects. That's one thing you could do. Or create these mutations via passage, adaptation, or newer genetic techniques. Often some phenotypes appear, increase, while others disappear, decrease. Right? This is that's gain of function in the idea of mutating it in a way to, I don't know, make it infect humans when it hasn't before. That is what they did here. And this is what they've always done. During the middle of COVID-19, he very ignorantly tried to go, oh, well, it's EPPP now. We changed the definition, so therefore it doesn't apply, even though we changed that 30 seconds ago. Now they're just going right back to it. I don't think they care what they call it at this point. Now, here's a clip, by the way, just to show you how ridiculous this was of, of uh, Kirby being asked, and you remember this, about gain of function. And about and this was at a point when I was already showing you that they're already going back to gain of function, just pretending like they don't know what it's called. And here they are going, are you sure there's not like the question's essentially like, is you know, do the, the benefits outweigh the risks of doing gain of function after everything we know and Fauci pretending it wasn't even really happening? By the way, at Wuhan Institute of Virology, but in general, on top of that, he's been denying this for a very long time. If you want to see a really bad acting job from somebody who usually does better, here's John Kirby looking really sheepish as he pretends he doesn't know what gain of function is, which is very telling. Version of the virus, you've made clear that there's no consensus. Does the president believe, though, that the reward outweighs the risk when it comes to gain of function research? Yeah, another way to say is benefits outweigh the risks. I find it very telling. He tried not to say that reward outweigh the risk when it comes to does the reward outweigh the risk when it comes to gain of that type of research have to say that again does the president believe that this type of gain of function research is proven he believes that um so here's what's hilarious to me did anybody buy what he just did right there that was really bad because first of all the guy didn't ask it so if he was confused about the question and he follows up with a more simplistic question, and he knows right what to say, clearly he understood the first time. John Kirby is usually better than that. And I just want you to remember how clumsy that was, which shows you they just want the average person to get the sense that that's not really what's going on. It's overblown. No, it's very real to the point to where he felt so nest. It was so, so real that he felt the need to make it look like it wasn't. Watch again. It's and that's what he says. Oh, I've got a history degree. You're going to have to make, explain that better. The reward outweigh the risk when it comes to gain of that type I of research. Got a history degree. You're going to have to say that again. Okay, so say it again. He asks. Does the president believe that this type of gain of function research is proven? Okay, so simple. So now he gets it. Obviously, he knew. Obviously, there's an effort to downplay the reality of this, which very clearly shows you there's something going on there we should be concerned about. He believes that um, it's important to help prevent future pandemics, which means 
he understands that there has to be legitimate scientific research. Oh, so you, so you do understand. Okay, just want to make sure, Kirby, you seem confused. Into the sources or potential sources of pandemics so that we understand it so that we can prevent them and we can prevent them from happening, obviously. I mean, if, if that's such an ignorant response. The argument, again, is that so you're making things dangerous that, you, that aren't normally as dangerous for the one in a billion chance that should it naturally occur exactly the way you did it in the lab, that you'll just so happen to have something ready that even then turns out to not work. <laughs> that's what they usually do anyway. Nobody should believe this. I mean, this is clumsy. And it's all, that's why Dr. Boyle had made that statement right in the beginning of COVID-19. Gain of function is weapons research. That's what they're doing. And they... I, and. Nine times out of 10, these things come from their labs or their use. Um, but he also believes, and, and, and this is why he wants the, the whole of government effort here to understand it, um, that that research has to be done, must be done in a safe and secure manner as, and as transparent as possible to the rest of the world so that so people know what's going on. So I think that's a fancy way of saying yes. Yeah, yeah. So you clearly understood the question. Very, very bad. Now, here is one of the groups, just one, and I have a couple of examples for you guys to see to continue the research that I was looking at a while back. Chimerion Bio, that's a smaller one, but I thought this, this was one of the earlier ones I was looking at that were focusing on, first of all, openly genetic medicine, like the very exactly what we know COVID-19 injections were. But this discusses the self-amplifying RNA platform. And specifically, Chimera, you know, Chimera, the idea of a, you know, adapting to whatever you needed to be kind of concept. And these things have already shown in every example I've looked at, overlapping with the, like the, you know, the denovirus concepts or the AstraZeneca, the different things we focused on that overlap with HIV. There's nothing but problems in this, historically and currently. Now, here is another one of these examples in 2022, showing you the overlap, where they enter into an agreement with none other than NIAID a federal agency, Fauci's, in fact, for preclinical assessment of its self-amplifying specifically COVID-19 vaccine, which was going on way before COVID-19, and they were working on it during COVID-19, but somehow we still have yet to see this come through, which we should be thankful for, quite honestly, but it's still happening either way. Now, this one is now removed, by the way. It's only on the way back machine, but it says our pipeline of SA, self-amplifying RNA-based therapeutics for the next generation. It says at Chimerion Bio, which, by the way, this group overlaps with people like Bob Langer and some of the other examples we've covered. It says we are committed to the development of our Shaisar or Shiza or however you want to say that particle and RNA technology. So this is where this gets into this kind of. The kind of technology that I think really like what I've over I've talked a lot about that really does worry me, the self, the smart dust level to this, the nanotechnology level. And these things are concerning and obviously in real time being used and have been for a long time. And even if simply as simple as things as the lipid nanoparticle aspect, but far more concerning than that, as we've shown you for decades that have been utilized by the government, real time stuff that people still deny in regard to smart dust, the, you know, or the, the mu chip we've talked about that goes back decades. And the reason I bring that up is because this conversation is something we've talked about that goes back before COVID-19, 2019, which was the Particles for Humanity conversation. And this is Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as well. And this is interesting to go back before this. But the micro-encapsulation technology, the vaccination tracking system, the 
single injection vaccines that, or the specifically the ones that ultimately release the rest of it in your body after the fact. And this is the interesting overlap with the self amplifying side of this. So this is talking about, you know, just the one single injection with time release particles that you can trigger from the outside or on patient medical record embedding vaccination skin information. So you can track people without them knowing it. Like this is all, and again, Gavi and the overlap with Trump's funding, this stuff really does concern me. And I think this is where I'm seeing this come into play more than ever. Where were we? The Shahizar particle. Now here, this one's gone as well, 2020. So going back to the very beginning, they launched their program for COVID-19 with their very own Shahizar self-amplifying mRNA platform. So this isn't interesting that we're, they're just even toying, they tell us, with the mRNA platform technology, but at the same time working on some Shizer self-amplifying particle RNA platform? Do you realize how far further ahead they were than what they were selling you? We were experimented on. Well, you were if you were stupid enough to get that injection, quite frankly, but people were being experimented on. I shouldn't have said that because there's plenty of people out there that did not know any better. A lot of people got manipulated. I was kind of trying to be funny. As always, I think there's plenty of people out there that didn't know. You know, and yeah, there was evidence and information. We were saying it, but not everybody saw it all at the beginning. Plenty of people made bad decisions and have done their best to try to come back from that, including with their families. I mean, I can only imagine what it must be like to think you're doing the right thing with children, with your family, to find out that you were lied to. But it says our ability for flexible positioning of viral antigens combined with the delivery of RNA targeting the virus life cycle makes their Shaizar a robust antiviral approach. In addition, the self-amplifying property of our platform is, and this is my point about the generalized platform version, is geared to achieve maximal efficacy, here's the important part, with lower doses. So explain for me this. How in 2020 were they already working on a problem that we were only later told about? The problem where, well, with the current mRNA lipid nanoparticle spike protein injections, the, remember, as we said this from day one, the classic problem they had with these COVID, the coronavirus vaccines were they would increase the lipid nanoparticle concentration to be able to deliver the mRNA. But when they increased that lipid nanoparticle concentration, it got too toxic. And every time it hurt people in the trials. And then magically during COVID-19, they couldn't figure out how to get it to deliver. So they increased lipid nanoparticle concentration. And how did they solve the problem? They never said they did. And what do you know? People are dying and people are getting sick because it was the same problem. And so weirdly enough, they're sitting here in 2020 in March and going, well, guess what? We've already solved that problem. We're going to use the self-amplifying platform, which will give us maximal efficacy with a lower dose. Therefore, we don't have the problem of too high giving you 14 doses to meet the problem. So how in the world, if they already knew that was going to be a problem, did they force people into using them while working on this in 2020? There is so much evidence out there to show you that they knew what was going on at some level and either wanted to hurt people or didn't care. And it says Chimeron Bio is a biotechnology company focused on research of self-amplifying RNA, the SARNA, towards development of novel RNA therapeutics across diseases. It is using its proprietary Shaizar platform to develop a pipeline of therapeutics and vaccines in oncology, rare genetic disorders, and infectious diseases. It's across the board. This stuff is already there. And the point is that they were using whatever they did to the population, in my opinion, to figure out how to make this work better. Here is the one from 2020 as well. Chimera on Bio and George Mason University 
they partner on the COVID-19 vaccine using the, a variation of the same technology. Clearly, this was something that was important and is still being pushed forward. Now, in general, I think it's important that we remember as they're sprinting forward into the same problematic that Remember, again, I reference it all the time. The Cell.com article from Dr. Fauci. I bet you can get the pop. Oh, son of a gun. I don't think I had anything highlighted there. Yeah, I'll include this. This is the one written by Dr. Fauci in 2022 that quite literally claims that they failed in this work. It says right here, Indeed, it seems, I think it's this one, a key challenge for next generation vaccines is determining if one size fits all vaccines targeted to key risk groups will be useful. It is inevitable that various human risk groups may require different vaccines. It says, indeed, it seems likely that respiratory vaccines that fail to elicit robust cell-mediated immunity may be suboptimal for the elderly, but also the vaccines elicit stronger cell-mediated responses could also increase the risk of immunopathogenic effects. And whole point was, it'll be, uh, where was it? I'm just trying to quickly run through it. It will also be important to learn more about the genetic differences between individuals related. I don't remember, that, that was the, I don't think that's the exact spot. In any sense, we must better understand why multiple sequential mucosal infections with the same circulating respiratory viruses sprouted over a decade of life fail to elicit natural protective immunity, especially with viruses that lack this drift. Or was it past unsuccessful attempts to elicit solid protection against mucosal respiratory viruses and to control the deadly outbreaks and pandemics they cause have been a scientific and public health failure that must be urgently addressed. That's the main point. Now, the party set up there about natural immunity, I flatly disagree with. But it says, we are excited and invigorated that many invest investigators and collaborative groups are rethinking from the ground up all of our past assumptions and approaches. No, they're not really. You're just sprinting forward in the same failed process. I mean, Dr. Bakke said this from the very beginning. You cannot elicit mucosal immunity, which is what he says right there you need, which we always knew, with a shot in the arm. So hurry up and get that flu shot in your shoulder, which completely will not help you regarding mucosal immunity, which is what you need to fight off respiratory viruses. But who cares, right? The point is that even Fauci can write this article, of course, at the very last paragraph, I got to remember that, claiming that this doesn't work and they still continue doing it. This is from 2023. Safety and immunogenicity of SARS-CoV-2 self-amplifying RNA vaccine expressing an anchored RBD, a randomized observer one. The point is this is being worked on in 2023, in August. More versions applied to the COVID-19 discussion. We have Japan that we've already talked about in December, the world's first self-amplifying mRNA COVID-19 vaccine without published efficacy or, uh, or safety data. They've already approved it because they don't need to show it anymore, right? Isn't that what the whole point was? No safety trials, just skip right to the next one. We don't need to show you anything. It's a whole new world, right? Well, we talked about this in Martin, May 2nd, 2021 and before, Self-spreading vaccines, self-amplifying mRNA vaccines. It's important to know the earlier points of this. I'll include that for you. But overall, I still think it's mind-blowing that with Fauci's point and everything else we've seen, that this is still not stopping. As, as Thomas Massey points out, a majority of Americans already suspect some unexplained deaths have been caused by COVID vaccines. That's quite a downplayed statement. 
but a quarter of Americans believe they know someone personally who was among the victims. And you realize that this is a broad thing that comes, that most everybody know that, that, that you don't need to look any further than to realize that people that were doing this have already stopped. What was it at? Like 5% of people that got even four or five boosters didn't get the last one. Everybody quietly accepted that they know that they made mistakes and they just don't want to admit it. But there's not enough acceptance of this publicly to stop them from continuing. So all these people out there that are terrified to admit that they gave their child something that could have taken their life are still allowing this to happen going forward. It's, it's, it's important not to be a coward about this and own your mistakes and help save people going forward because these aren't stopping. Cancer is striking more and more young people. And of course, doctors are baffled. They, ha- they even use the word baffled. Like it's becoming a running joke, isn't it? This is from two days ago. Malene Keene was studying for the bar exam and preparing to move to New York City last June when she started throwing up blood. Because it's common for 27-year-olds, right? Learned days later that she had gastric cancer. Because isn't it, it's always typical that it just comes out of nowhere like that, right? I mean, it's just this is what the oncologists, if you listen to them, are telling you. Turbo cancers, explosion. It's out. It's, it's everywhere. Actually, I, I should include this one for that, that point. From Swift Policy Research. See if they've updated it recently. Uh, well, no, I guess they haven't updated it since 2021. But either in any case, it's important. This is about the COVID vaccines and cancer overlap and how it's very clearly causing immune dysregulation, lymphocytopenia. And that's in part one of the causing explosions of cancers. But it says brain fog from chemotherapy made it hard for her legal work. I just had to include that because it's just so disgusting how chemotherapy that works about 3% of the time in a broad sense across all chemotherapeutic aspects. And that's disgusting. I mean, these things are failing people there. And everything we know and associate with the bad sides of cancer, that's all chemotherapy side effects. Chemotherapy is what's killing people. It's not cancers. I mean, obviously there is a level of it, but chemotherapeutic drugs are the only classification of drugs that I know of that doctors get a direct cut of the profit for prescribing. I wonder why you give them something that fails 98% of the time and make money from it that that's legal. Either way, the point is, this came out of nowhere for her, and now she's struggling and blaming it on the cancer when it's chemotherapy, but largely, I think this is coming from not a baffling problem, but the genetic manipulation that was dumped on the population. Cancer is hitting more and more young people in the U.S. around the globe. Baffling doctors. It literally says that. A study in British Medical Journal Oncology last year reported a sharp global rise in cancers in people under 50, with the highest rates in North America, Australia, Western Europe, you know, the most vaccinated locations, but we're baffled. They suspect that changes in the way we live, less physical activity, more ultra-processed foods, new toxins, have raised the risk for younger generations. That must be it, right? Can you define any of those things? Can you prove? Well, you can show how all of those clearly add to it. Where was the tipping point? Why did it all explode in 2021? I mean, it's just such a... willfully ignorant stance. All of those things I guarantee you are causing problems, but to see it explode on a dime in that exact look right off the back of these COVID-19 injections, everybody knows what's going on. It's likely some environmental change, they say, whether it's something in our food, our medications, or something we have not yet determined. They include medications in there, of course, but it's just funny how you can even include the possible medication overlap, but how much we want to bet they haven't even expressed that COVID-19 is in that category or excuse me, the injections. We're baffled. Absolutely baffled. Let's also not forget, as Tom Nelson writes, 
And Sonia Elijah has been breaking this down for a while. We interviewed her a while back as well. Saying amidst the myriad of red flags raised against these novel vaccines, another disturbing and overlooked fact has become more apparent. We've talked about this many times. The mass-produced mRNA product rolled out to the public was not even the same one that was tested in Pfizer's clinical trial. It's the same thing they do over and over. And this is, this is the, the part that makes it so hard to pretend this is not a deliberate action at some level. Because this, I mean, Dr. Kevin McKernan and plenty of others have called this out. They gave you something that was not what they, the original thing. They tested this thing over here and then gave you something different. And a thank you to Tushez Jackson for saying this is something that, t- that we've been talking about for a long time. But here, we should actually play this. Now, today is going to be a long show, guys, so just buckle in. I'm going to play. There's a lot to talk about. I, th- I think it's important to show this again. The swine flu scare of 1976. That was the year the U.S. government told us all that swine flu could turn out to be a killer that could spread across the nation. And Washington decided that every man, woman, and child in the nation should get a shot to prevent a nationwide outbreak, a pandemic. Well, 46 million of us obediently took the shot. And now 4,000 Americans are claiming damages from Uncle Sam amounting to $3.5 billion because of what happened when they took that shot. By far the greatest number of the claims, two-thirds of them, are for neurological damage or even death, allegedly triggered by the flu shot. We pick up the story back in 1976 when the threat posed by the swine flu virus seemed very real indeed. Where did this so-called deadly variety of flu, where did it first hit back in 1976? It began right here at Fort Dix in New Jersey in January of that year when a number of recruits began to complain of respiratory ailments, something like the common cold. Dr. David Sensor, then head of the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, is now in private industry. He devised the swine flu program, and he pushed it. You began to give flu shots to the American people in October of 76. October 1st. By that time, how many cases of swine flu around the world had been reported? There had been uh, several reported, but none confirmed. There had been cases in uh, uh, Australia that were reported by the press, uh, by the news media. There were cases in... uh, None confirmed. Did you ever uncover any other outbreaks of swine flu anywhere in the world? No. Now, nearly everyone was to receive the shot in a public health facility where a doctor might not be present. Therefore, it was up to the CDC to come up with some kind of official consent form, giving the public all the information it needed about the swine flu shot. This form stated that the swine flu vaccine had been tested. What it didn't say was that after those tests were completed, the scientists developed another vaccine. And that was the one given to most of the 46 million who took the shot. That vaccine was called X53A. Was X53A ever field tested? Uh, I I can't say I would have to. uh, It wasn't. I don't know. Never went to jail. Well, I would think that you're in charge of the program. I would have to check uh, the records. I haven't uh, looked at this in some time. Did anyone ever come to you and say, you know something, fellas? There's the possibility of neurological damage if you get into a mass immunization program. No. No one ever did? No. Do you know Michael Hatwick? Yes. Mm -hmm. Dr. Michael Hatwick directed the surveillance team for the swine flu program at the CDC. 
His job was to find out what possible complications could arise from taking the shot and to report his findings to those in charge. Did you know ahead of time, Dr. Hatwick, that there had been case reports of neurological disorders, neurological illness, apparently associated with the injection of influenza vaccine? Absolutely. You did? Yes. How'd you know that? By review of the literature. So you told your superiors, the men in charge of the swine flu immunization program, about the possibility of neurological disorders? Absolutely. What would you say if I told you that your superiors say that you never told them about the possibility of neurological complications? That's nonsense. I can't believe that they would say that they did not know that there were neurological illnesses associated with influenza vaccination. That simply is not true. We did know that. I've said that Dr. Hatwick had never told me of uh, his feelings on this subject. Uh, well, he's lying. I guess you would have to um, make that assumption. Then why does this report from your own agency, dated July 1976, list neurological complications as a possibility? I think the... Uh, consensus of uh, the scientific community was that the evidence relating neurologic disorders to influenza immunization uh, was such that they did not feel that this association was a real one. You did so just understand, he literally just said that he lied, that we didn't get told, oh, but wait, we did, and we didn't think it was a problem. Just think about how stupid that is. On a live interview, or rather just a live, just a played interview publicly. Nobody went to jail for that. Nothing even happened. Welcome to the same thing right now with more evidence, more research, more real-time information flying back and forth, and still nobody goes to jail. That's just so incredible. And you think, you look at the, the, what's going on in the world because of these things. I mean, my God, it's just unbelievable. And even worse, this is what they're currently saying right now. This is from two days ago. Here are the vaccines you should get. Not just COVID-19, guys. Guess what? Go get your monkeypox shot, get your RSV shot, get your flu, multi-quadvalent, blah, 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 all of them. That's what they're telling you. Before the pandemic, doctors recommend just one annual shot, the flu vaccine. By the way, even then, it was failing rapidly all the time, and, 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 and especially when it was the uh, live attenuated people were getting sick. They still lie about that, but you can look it up in their own information that it was shedding. People were spreading this from people to people after the shot. And they just pretend it wasn't true. You can look it right up on their information. It says it right now. There's a percentage chance that can happen. But now the current quadvalent shot they're using, well, that gets into a whole nother level of the, of the discussion of the antibody dependent enhancement overlap. Like you're giving somebody a shot that produces four different types of antibodies. How in the world is that not discussed as a possible overlap? So people who are taking those shots are not being told that that itself, when working exactly the way it's supposed to, assuming it works at all, or the, even one of those four, or even what you end up dealing with, if those are even there, that that could end up causing exactly working just the way it should, antibody-dependent enhancement, pathogen and priming. It's, it's just incredible to me. But the point is, you get, it says, to get you through respiratory disease season, you have to get all these shots, they say, or just be healthy, you know, and don't be, you know, the idea of just general health. Yes, washing your hands has always been a smart thing to do. Yes, if you feel sick, you probably shouldn't go out and go to work and do whatever. That, that's been a common tactic. People have overreacted a little bit, which I kind of understand to a degree because of how much of this is shown to be lies. But it's always been smart to just be, you know, in a health sense, precautionary. 
doesn't mean wearing masks because they're not statistically significant in reducing transmission. It doesn't mean putting chemicals and gene therapy in your body that are shown to actually be dramatically more damaging than anything you think is actually happening. It just means be responsible. But it says now health officials say a flu shot isn't enough to keep you safe from contagious and potentially life-threatening viruses. The CDC issues new vaccine recommendations at detail who should get what and when. Several new vaccines are listed. COVID-19, shots for respiratory, uh, for RSV, for monkeypox. And guess what, guys? Get them all at the same time. No big deal. Still saying that. About 45% of adults, just so you understand, the monkeypox vaccine they're giving people in general, not only is it so shockingly unnecessary because it's not a problem in its own right for the mass, vast majority of people, but it's dangerous. I've gone over every single version they're using. It's some adaptation of the sm- smallpox, monkeypox variations, or excuse me, smallpox, cowpox variations, and every single one of them are horrifyingly dangerous for you. And they're still telling people to get them, even if you're not even in the tangential peripheral category that might get it. It's just, it, assuming that's even what's actually happening. But get them all at the same time. About 45% of adults have received an influenza shot, they say, this season. 45%. Which, by the way, I don't even know if I believe that, because that's higher than I remember ever hearing in the past. But it says 19% have received the updated COVID vaccine. 19%. Again, I don't believe that. Seeing as how we just saw people who were on the cusp of doing exactly what they were told who said no. And now all of a sudden, with nothing more happening, we're supposed to believe that that many got it. I just, even then, though, realize that's only 20%, even if that's accurate. And 18% of people over 60 have received an RSV jab. You know, the thing that used to be only for kids, which is recommended for older adults, some pregnant people, and young children. Pregnant people. This is still happening. So we just talked about this a while back, the overlap of the multiple injections, as well as the pregnancy side of this. I just keep using these same tweets because it's been I've talked about these for so long. But this is, you know, after I was live, the account we were using while we were censored. It's the same information. They're still telling you that these shots can be taken side by side, even though right to this very day, all the links are right here. You could look at the data that says we've never tested them alongside each other because they rarely do. If at, with, with any of them, RSV, monkeypox, I mean, let alone monkeypox. Like, think about that. The one that's dangerous, I guarantee they didn't test in this discussion. But this is just right here, the flu and the COVID shot. And they're still, they're still claiming that. Well, here is the RSV shot. And this one's specifically called, uh, where was it? It's Bifortus. And there's, that's, there's one, there's, you know, there's usually more than one name. There's the publicly stated name and then the weird one like Comirnaty and so on. Uh, I'm just, let me see if I got it right here where I can see it better. It's probably in here. In any case, that's the name. You can look it up. That'll guide you. There's another name I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. But this is the RSV shot we're discussing. This is the one they're giving. The one that we were just discussing, I want to show you something that it says in here. Very clearly, drug interaction studies. No formal drug interaction studies have been performed. Oh, it's it's right there. It's a nirsevimab is the other name. But that's, it's Befortus is, is, I forget which one's the official kind of like approved version. But either way, it says is not predicted to be a substrate of inhibitor or inducer of cytochrome for P50 enzymes or transporter systems based on so problems they clearly have identified in the past. But guess what? Again, they have not tested to find out. Just because it's not predicted to be a problem you might expect, they've never tested it alongside other vaccines. 
And it says right there, there is limited experience with co-administration of this with vaccines. So they're telling you as a child or an adult, or an, uh, somebody who is an elderly person, the two most high risk categories to take these things alongside each other, dangerous injections by themselves, especially COVID-19, and they don't even know if they're going to affect problematically alongside each other. They don't know what they'll do because they never tested them. I just don't know why that's not a bigger story for most people. We've talked about this so many times. Now, it says research suggests the updated COVID vaccines are effective against a newer Omicron subvariant known as JN1. You know how they know that? They don't know that. They just say that every single time. Researchers suggest means we think it might, right? Based on this paperwork, it looks like it kind of overlaps. But guess what? They said that about Delta and Omicron and every other one before it. And guess what? Every single one's shown to be a failure. But this one probably works, right, guys? I don't know who in the world still listens to what these people have to say. Either way, the bottom line is what they're giving you is something that has multiple things from before that are not even remotely effective against whatever they tell you is happening. Their own paperwork shows that. It shows you that your own system collapses within the first week of taking this, let alone three months later where you fall into negative efficacy. This is why people out there are getting a, a stiff breeze blows along and they fall into a bed full of all sorts of sickness because their body can't fight anything off. And they blame that on COVID-19 is rising again. No, your back, your VADES is rising again. Everyone said six months and older, it says, should get the flu shot and the updated COVID shot, including people who have already been vaccinated or sickened with the virus because natural immunity is still apparently a conspiracy theory, right? Doesn't It's just staggering. Quote, we have a tool that can help protect people from the most serious health effects from these viruses, but people aren't taking advantage of that. It's very disappointing. That's it, right? One of those broad statements that basically outlines or suggests that this is a positive thing for everybody, no matter what, and there's no side effects. That doesn't say that, but if you're, you're complaining that we have this great thing that deals with most of the problems and no one's doing it. Well, that doesn't really explain the fact that, well, a lot of people don't need it. A lot of people can be hurt by it, including immunocompromised and on and on and on. But if you just listen to this doctor, they just go do it because it's good for everybody. That's become this broken mindset from people that are blinded by the industry. Vaccines are not one size fits all, and they are not independent of problems. Doctors and public health experts said people shouldn't let vaccine fatigue stop them from getting shots that have been proven to be safe and effective at preventing severe disease and death. Can you believe they're still saying that? It says for illnesses like flu and COVID, vaccine effectiveness can wane over time. No, that's not how that works. It's your body that is failing, not some substance put in your body three months ago. It is your body that fails, your immune system that fails. But it says, so staying protected requires getting updated shots. No, it doesn't. If you've never gotten one, you'd be better off. And this is going to, we'll get into the, you know, the, the other data that we've shown you many times around why these things were never dangerous, whatever you believe COVID was, based on the science that they've shown, the same people screaming, trust the science, now ignore it, that shows you that it was never worse than the flu, that it's dramatically more dangerous than not taking anything, and that everything they told you was a lie. But it says new additions to this year's schedule include the monkeypox vaccine. I mean, not only is there still an emergency under place, in place for monkeypox, despite the fact that there was by no means even remotely under the definition of the word emergency and emergency for that. And nobody even talks about it. And yet you're going to include this in the shots that you recommend for children and elderly from everybody. 
I mean, that's crazy to me. And oh, it might not apply to every single age category, but they're saying we've now included this on the schedule that recommends for broad use vaccines for this very small grouping. There's something very nefarious going on with that one in particular. A new combination shot that protects against five types of the bacteria that causes uh, me, um, basically meningitis or what is it? Many meningococcal, or if you say that disease was also added. Why? Have we talked about that? Is that just because they just arbitrarily decide to include more yearly annual vaccines? Is it is it important to stop? Is there a rising problem there? Like, it's just so wild how this is becoming so... Pr- Look, bottom line, you have... you ha- it sh- If you want to take something like this because you think you need it, well, that's your choice. And I've always been okay with that, even though I think it's crazy based on what we know. The problem, though, is that these are being forced on people, even though you don't see it as much right now. It's being forced on people and children to be able to go to schools, to be able to get into certain jobs. This is still happening. And now they're just adding more and more and more, and you'll be boxed out for not. But your health is more important. The schedules also remind people to stay on top of other recommended vaccines, including those for tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, and pneumonia. My God. If you need all of these injections to not get sick, your your body's the problem. Not, I mean, the, the crazy part about this is that before all these things, yeah, sure, there was sickness, there was illness, but ultimately, you can see the rise in illnesses in children. I mean, you could take the the vax versus no vax studies. There's been multiple ones done that show you that well visits explode for children that are vaccinated versus those that aren't. I mean, it's just basic information you cannot ignore today. And I've never claimed that's because vaccines inherently are bad. It certainly could mean that. I don't believe their intent behind these things have ever been honest. And I think that that should be left to people to decide. But here we are. Do it all again. Don't question anything. Just close your eyes and take what you're told is what they really would want you to do. Now, here is one of the studies from 2022. Serious adverse events of special interest following specifically mRNA COVID-19 injection. They randomized trial. This was a huge, massive, peer-reviewed study on a least severe science direct that found exactly what we've shown you a million times, that the Pfizer trial had a 36% higher risk of serious adverse events, death, hospitalization, permanent disability, in the vaccine group compared to not taking it. Moderna was 6% higher. That's just a a static reality. You took the injection, you had a 36% higher chance of dying, going to the hospital, or having permanent disability, and apparently that just doesn't matter. But trust the science. Or this one, which I think is very important. And we talked about this one going back a long way. We actually talked about this right at the beginning of the COVID-19 illusion. So going back to the point they just said, take your flu shot, because doing it all at the same time somehow makes sense, even though we've never tested to find out about the problem. But on top of that, what did the Department of Defense find in 2020, well, they found that if you take these influenza vaccinations, you increase your risk of coronaviruses. Remember that? It's, 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 it, they, did, they tried so hard to push back and make this fake news. It's a Pentagon study. And it was very clear what it found. Oh, I think it, uh, let me find it again. It looks like it's closed on me here. It was right here, right here. So the important part, and there's a lot of different points in this. Now, it's only about these two specific things. It doesn't incre- increase your risk of just everything, but specifically, it increases your risk of other certain kinds of illnesses, one of them being metanumavirus, 
There's an overlap there with pneumonia in the same kind of conversation, but specifically coronaviruses. Examining non-influenza viruses specifically, the odds of both coronavirus, in a broad sense, you know, that includes the common cold, uh, the, the family, the very thing they're aiming at with all of their platform discussions, the odds of both coronavirus and human metanumavirus in vaccinated individuals were significantly higher when compared to unvaccinated individuals. It breaks down to about 36% more for coronavirus and 51% more for metanumavirus. So the Pentagon did this study for their own people in regard to military deploy, uh, readiness and found that if you took the flu shot, you had a 36% increased chance of getting coronaviruses, which by the way, includes COVID-19. And there was a massive flu vaccine push right before the COVID-19 illusion. Interesting. Now they're doing it all over again. Quick, take them at the same time, right? So you're going to have an, it's a, a coronavirus injection that seems to cause the very thing or increase your body's destroying your immune system. And you're on top of that, taking a shot that increases your risk of getting illnesses in general. It seems ridiculous to me. Look at it for yourself. Peer-reviewed study, 2020, or in general, the one we've shown you many times as well. That is, whatever they're telling you this COVID-19 illusion is, the studies that they've done on this conversation show you that it's uh, right here. At a global level, before vaccinations, right, 2020, before, infection fatality rate for whatever you're talking about may have been as low as 0.03 and 0.07 and that's 0.03 for 0 to 59, 0.07 for 0 to 69 years old. That's pre-vaccination, which is dramatically less than the flu. And then on top of that, 94% of the global population falls within that age group. So it's just not dangerous, even if it's there in the first, or assuming it's there in the first place. And now it's only gotten more diminished and more, and the problem is that their immune systems are destroying themselves. And they're blaming whatever's in front of them. All of this is peer-reviewed science. All of it is completely valid. You could validate this for yourself. None of it's been retracted. So this brings us to one of the most important ones, I think, which is brings this back to the earliest conversation of autism. Springer Link. This is from three days ago. Prenatal exposure to COVID-19 mRNA vaccine, BNT162B2, induces autism-like behaviors in male neonatal rats. I mean, it's, it's coming full circle here, right? Some we, he, Andrew Wakefield, Dell Bigtree, these people need to be remembered for the push that they were, they were trying to call this out all the way back then for just specifically the MMR vaccine, which is one of the ones they're still pushing, even though those in and of themselves have not been tested alongside each other, but they give them to you in three in one dose at the same time. But COVID-19 itself. Concerns? have arisen about the potential neurodevelopmental implications of these vaccines, especially in susceptible groups such as pregnant women and their offspring. Potent pregnant rats received the COVID-19 mRNA, specifically Pfizer's BNT162B2, what they would call Comirna T, should they have ever released that version, during gestation. Subsequent evaluations on male and female offspring included autism-like behaviors, neuronal counts, and motor performance. Our findings reveal, now to, to be very clear, it is not always exactly something that translates between animals and, and humans, but this is why they do animal studies, which is exactly, which by the way, I have a huge problem with in its own right, because I just can't stand it. But the point is that ultimately 
the beginning of this, it was the reason, in my opinion, they skipped the animal trials and then went back later and did a half-hearted version because this is what it would have shown. It would have shown the antibody-dependent enhancement. It would have shown the pathogenic priming and all the different overlaps, including the issue with polyethylene glycol. There, what These things would have been standing out like huge red flags, and that's why they didn't do it. I don't know why that would be hard to wrap your mind around for some people right now, especially with all the information that's later come out that they wanted to hide everything for 75 years or that they've been lying about their information or they tested one thing and gave you another. It's obvious they're caught. But it says, our findings reveal that the mRNA BNT162B2 vaccine significantly alters the WNT gene expression and BDNF levels in both male and female rats, suggesting a profound impact on key neurodevelopmental pathways. Notably, male rats exhibited pronounced autism-like behaviors characterized by a marked, re a marked reduction in social interaction and repetitive patterns of behavior. Furthermore, there was a substantial decrease in neuronal counts in critical brain regions, indicating potential neurodegeneration or altered neurodevelopment. Male rats also demonstrated impaired motor performance, evidenced by reduced coordination and agility. I mean, this is powerful. Let's not forget that Pfizer's own study showed you a, it was an almost a 10% reduction in the pregnancy index, but they just arbitrarily said, well, it's below this, what, 12%, so we don't have to report it. But we know, we saw it, and we showed it to you ourselves. I think that was the main point. Now, there, the, the ultimate idea here, guys, is that there's so much evidence like this out there showing you how concerning this all is. All these different overlaps, and nobody seems to want to even slow down. Now, for the WNT point, basically it says, it's uh, facilitating the expression of genes involved in cell proliferation, survival, differentiation, migration. I'll include a link for you to, if you want to dive deeper in what the WNT signaling pathway is. But just the main point is that it's causing autism-like problems and neurodegeneration. That's, that's for sure, by the way, in rats. Whether that translates into your child, is that something you want to experiment with? They sure do. Well, again, I'll include the same point from this one. And this was the fact that they also never tested whether it was safe with pregnant or breastfeeding women. And they just lied about it. They never, ever studied to find out if it was safe. They point to real world, you know, observation, but even that, but that's not what it shows. Scotland, for example, refused to follow up because it showed a problem and they didn't want to cause vaccine hesitancy. So when they go look at all the real world people, everything's fine. It's not fine. We have an explosion in neonatal deaths. We have an explosion in pregnancy problems and a reduction in population. But they just pretend like it's the, we're baffled by all that and somehow still say that there's an observation we can see in the world. They never tested as the point, and they know they didn't test it. And they yet still said, safe for pregnant people. And we're baffled by all the problems, right? Here's yet another study showing you that it's dangerous for your children. Nobody seems to care in the corporate and, you know, the medical health field. Now, that's important, and we will continue to follow up on whatever ends up happening in that direction, guys. But it's, it's something that we, I mean, I think a lot of people are pushing back enough on that to see it slow down. But the more that these kind of conversations build in the war for, front and foreign policy, more and more continues, more and more happens without us paying attention. And they're doing these things, in, let's not forget the labs in different parts of the world that people are barely paying attention to. Now, I think that there's an obvious overlap here. Now, this part of it applies to the chat GPT, open AI aspect of the military engagement and the, the changing of, the, of their policy. 
But these things are being used in the medical field as well. They're already talking about artificial intelligence design drugs using the same platform stuff, which, by the way, dovetails with Elon Musk and his work. But Sam Biddle here, technology reporter, was the one that reported here from The Intercept that OpenAI quietly deletes its ban on military and warfare applications from its permissible uses policy in a revision this week, very quietly. It says, here's the section of the OpenAI policy, OpenAI being the, you know, the general platform for the chat GPT sort of artificial intelligence language model mapping. Now it says, it is ban- it, uh, this is the section of policy on banned usage that was deleted two days ago. In its place is a much more ambiguous general ban on causing harm and a very narrow mention of weapons development. Now, of course, they try to argue that it's the same thing. We just want to make it more you know, broad. But all it really does is open the window for the U.S. government or anybody that might utilize it in that way to say, oh, well, here's why it's not causing harm or here's why it applies in this way. If you just simply banned broadly military and warfare, well, they couldn't sh- pretend that what they're doing isn't military and warfare. They could try. But in this case, if you pretend that it's only causing harm through that, well, the military can claim that, well, we're not using it to cause harm. We're using it to defend people, right? That's how the game gets played. But it says you can read the previous version of the policies here. So you can see that they did delete this. It says if you work at OpenAI and have concerns or any thoughts, reach out to them. But here is the intercept. OpenAI quietly deletes ban on using chat GPT for military and warfare. This was yesterday. Quietly deleting, OpenAI quietly deletes language expressly prohibiting the use of technology for military purposes from its usage policy, which seeks to dictate how powerful and immensely popular tools like ChatGPT can be used. Now, this is a really alarming step in a direction I think we all knew was coming. That, quite frankly, I think we, I think many already know is happening. Like we'll get into the point, which is right, you know, immediately after this in regard to what's already being used in Gaza. And I quite frankly wonder whether this is the same discussion, especially with Palantir, which we'll get to next, joining the fight against Palestinians. But what concerns me most about this is exactly what's happening in Gaza right now. By arguing that somehow it's the, you know, artificial intelligence knows better. Remember when Whitney I talked, Whitney and I talked about this with the overlap of Eric Schmidt, already telling you that we're going to get to a point very quickly where AI is going to be deciding these things. And, and sometimes it may look like they're wrong, but we have to trust the AI, like already setting this up, knowing that they're ultimately dictating from behind the scenes what's being inputted to make those decisions, or even not, still lack of accountability. But it opens this door for them to start using this, you know, it's, right now we know this is already soulless, if you, for lack of a better word, I guess. Like the fact that they don't really care about the human side of this. But once you do this, you allow complete disconnect from the consequences of what's actually happening, which is what, what they're doing in Gaza right now. I believe this is by design. I think we're about to step into this very alarming next step of warfare, utilizing artificial intelligence. I mean, it's like everything out of every nightmare movie we've ever seen. Now it says, up until January 10th, OpenAI's usage policy page included a ban on activity that has high risk of physical harm, including specifically weapons development and military and warfare. It says that plainly worded prohibition against military applications would seemingly rule out any official and extremely lucrative use by the Department of Defense or any other state military. The new policy retains an injunction not to use our service to harm others or yourself or other yourself or others. 
and gives, quote, develop or use weapons as an example. But the blanket ban on military warfare has vanished. So as long as you can somehow argue that what you're doing does not harm others and all you're doing is defending others with violence, well, you see, there's a loophole there. I guarantee this is not by accident. It says the unannounced redaction in part of a major rewrite of the policy page, which the company said was intended to make the document clearer, more readable, hardly, it's more ambiguous, and says, and which includes many other substantial language and formatting changes. Felix declined to say whether the vaguer harm ban encompassed all military use, Felix being from the platform, OpenAI, declined to say whether the vaguer harm ban encompassed all military use, writing, quote, any use of our technology, including by the military to develop or use weapons, injure others or destroy property or engage in unauthorized activities that violate the security of the service or system is disallowed. Well, that's nice to say out loud, but that's not what the policy says anymore. It says, quote, there is a distinct difference between the two policies, the VERP being the one they deleted and the one they currently have, as the former clearly outlines that weapons development and military and warfare is disallowed, while the latter emphasizes flexibility and compliance with the law. This is how they always play this game, acting like what they're doing somehow, as long as they state it this way, is applicable. It says, developing weapons and carrying out activities related to military and warfare is lawful to various extents. The potential implications for AI safety are significant, given the well-known instances of bias and hallucination present with large language models, LLMs, and their overall lack of accuracy. Their use within military warfare can only lead to imprecise and biased operations that are likely to exacerbate harm and civilian casualties. But we're going to do it anyway, though, right? Because that's always what happens. The smart people stand up and say, this is a problem. It's going to make a, you know, you're, it's going to, this is going to happen, or this trap will be there, or people won't do it, or the wrong person will get involved, or other countries will step in. And every single time, same thing's happening right now. And I've always argued in the past, it's not just ignorance. They know this. In fact, I argue it's because that's what they want. As long as they can blame somebody else, it's always Iran bad guy or China or Russia or whoever else they want to point at. Well, in fact, the very thing they're doing is exactly what they're trying to pretend is what they're stopping. It's the same game every single time. And all they're saying here is that this is going to lead to more harm and more civilian casualties. Now, just wait till it overlaps with the Palantir side of this because it's the same problem. The real world consequences of the policy are unclear, it says. Last year, the Intercept reported that OpenAI was unwilling to say whether it would enforce its own clear military and warfare ban in the face of increasing interest from the Pentagon and U.S. intelligence. I would bet my life that it didn't do anything, that it's already happening, and this is simply the allowance of what they've already agreed to. That's my opinion. But it says, quote, given the use of AI systems and the targeting of civilians in Gaza, it's a notable moment to make the decision to remove the words military and warfare from OpenAI's permissible use policy. This is Sarah Myers West, Managing Director of the AI Now Institute and former AI policy analyst at the Federal Trade Commission. It says, quote, the language that is in the policy remains vague and raises questions about how OpenAI intends to approach enforcement. I don't think they're approaching it at all. Experts who reviewed the policy changes at the, at the Intercept's request said OpenAI appears to be silently weakening its stance against doing business with militaries. Because, again, the plan, I think. I think that's where this is ultimately coming from, long before we were told about it. But it says, quote, I could imagine that the shift away from military and warfare to weapons leaves open a space for open AI to support operational infrastructures. 
as long as the application doesn't directly involve weapons development narrowly defined. I think the idea that you can contribute to warfighting platforms while claiming not to be involved is the development or use of weapons would be in the development of use of weapons would be disingenuous. Removing the weapons from the socio-technical system, including command and control infrastructures, of which it's part. So it's just a cop-out. Suchman and Myers West both pointed to OpenAI's close partnership with Microsoft a major defense contractor, which has invested $13 billion in the LLM maker, the language models, to date and resells the company's software tools. While some within U.S. military leadership have expressed concern about the tendency of the LLMs to insert glaring factual errors and other distortions, good, oh cool, they're just going to go forward even though it already inserts glaring factual errors. My point is, I argue that's being used intentionally. That's the way to pretend like it's always right when you want it to be right. So whatever you do is justifiable, but also allows manipulation. I can guarantee if this was completely sound, it would probably end up doing things that they wouldn't want to happen. So this gives them that opening. They've already expressed concern about inserting glaring factual errors or other distortions, as well as security risks that might come with using chat GPT to analyze classified or otherwise sensitive data. The Pentagon remains generally eager, despite that, to adopt artificial intelligence tools. DARPA has been using and drooling over this for a long time, both in this sense, but also internally. That's where this gets even more alarming to me, is having this kind of accessibility, this kind of artificial intelligence learning actively operating inside your body. That's where all of this stuff is going. The smart dust overlap, the nanotechnology, the use of internal biosurveillance, which is the Lieber-Langer overlap that's the impetus for the stuff we're currently using. And that, my friends, is something that people won't ever want to admit to. It's so alarming and it's so dystopian that I'm worried it's already happening. In a November address, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks stated that AI is, quote, a key part of the comprehensive warfighter-centric approach to innovation that Secretary Austin and I have been driving from day one. Very alarming. Now, let's not forget that this is happening right now. They are using an artificial intelligence system called uh, Habsora, which means the gospel, which their own people have labeled a mass assassination factory, killing people at a scale we've never seen before, knowing that predominantly it's civilians. And that's somehow it working? Well, maybe that's exactly the point. Lack of accountability. That was one of the first things that stood out to me here. You should read this article. 972 Magazine did a great job on this. And here's our coverage of that article, if you'd like to read it, The Mass Assassination Factory. But this is not new. This is from 2021. The Pentagon inches toward letting AI control weapons. Guys, it's already happening. If we don't know that already, if we can't understand whenever this stuff is being floated, it's been done for 20 years by now, this is who they are. Their history shows you that. Now, certainly possible that somehow they didn't do it this time. But an an intelligent person would base it off their past actions and what they're always capable of. Quite frankly, I think this has long since been done. Now, Sam also writes, they are underneath, uh, this guy Max Lamparth responds to the OpenAI post, says, thank you for highlighting this important change. We studied potential escalator risks, escalator, escalate, escalators risks, I'll probably typo, from deploying the LOMs in military decision-making scenarios 
in this paper, which I also found very interesting. Guess what this says? This is from Cornell University from January 7th, 2024. Escalation risks from language models in military and diplomatic decision-making. So they're already basically studying how this is going to go wrong. This is actually very alarming to me, guys. Governments, and I mean, really, for the point that we should be wondering whether this is already what is being utilized, which is why things seem to be rapidly escalating. Governments are, this is directly from the study, governments are increasingly considering integrating autonomous AI agents in high-stakes military and foreign policy decision-making. Again, that's already happening in Israel. That we can prove. It's probably happening everywhere else. Especially with the emergence of advanced generative AI models like chat GP4, or excuse me, like GPT-4. Our work aims to scrutinize the behavior of multiple AI agents in simulated war games, specifically focused on their uh, predilection to take escalatory actions that may exacerbate multilateral conflicts. Just, just the simple risk that this in and of itself could drive you into a war should be enough to not utilize it like this. But when have they ever cared about that? It says, drawing on political science and international relations literature about escalation dynamics, we design a novel war game simulation and scoring framework to assess the escalation risks of actions taken by these agents in different scenarios. Contrary to prior studies, our research provides both qualitative and quantitative insights and focuses on large language models, the LLMs that they're currently talking about. We find that all five studied off-the-shelf LLMs show forms of escalation and difficult-to-predict escalation patterns. We observe that models tend to develop arms race dynamics, leading to greater conflict, and in rare cases, even the development of nuclear weapons. Qualitatively, we also collect the models' reported reasonings for for chosen actions and observe worrying justifications based on deterrence and first-strike tactics. Do you know why? Because the people who built this, designed this, are inputting their strike-first nuclear weapon mindset. Donald Trump with his tactical nukes or the reality of the U.S. stance of being a first-strike country when most others will not. This is driving their decision-making process. That the, the, The actual language models are now creating in this kind of like rapidly escalating spiral of more and more and more escalation and more deterrence based on violence. I mean, guys, that's exactly what they just claimed Yemen was. De-escalation strikes. I mean, it's not hard to see how this is working this way. Given the high stakes of military and foreign policy context, it says we recommend further examination and cautious consideration before deploying autonomous language model agents for strategic military or diplomatic decision making. Too late. That's the problem here, guys. It's too late. These are, this is already happening. It's already rushing forward. It's already taking people's lives in Gaza. Now, Robert D. Atkinson writes, good to know OpenAI recognizes that they need to have patriotic duty. See what I'm talking about? To their country. If they don't want to do work for the U.S. military, then don't expect the U.S. to protect them anywhere in the world. These kind of belligerent mindsets terrify me. The idea that this, like, essentially this, benign, like, what's the right word for it? You know, it's a, it's a program. And what he's talking about is the OpenAI team, but saying, oh, well, good. I'm glad they recognize they have to utilize this technology for violence because, you know, pro-US, jingoism. I mean, it's just crazy to me. Why would that be the mindset? But Nicole chimes in and says, OpenAI 
stole your private information and is sharing it with hackers. They don't give an F about you or this country. But see, these people don't care whether he knows that or not. I don't think it matters. I think people in this mindset are about utilizing whatever they can to justify that they're always in the right. Now, here's what she's referencing. Google's researchers attack prompts chat GPT to reveal its training data. It says a team of researchers primarily from Google's DeepMind systematically convinced chat GPT to reveal snippets of the data it was trained on using a new type of attack prompt, which asked a production model of the chatbot to repeat specific words forever. Using that tactic, the researchers showed, and you can look at yourself, that there are large amounts of privately identifiable information in OpenAI's large language models. What do you know? Oh my, I'm just completely shocked. It's like it's like you've never heard me say that every single time they promise it's not going to happen, that it literally happens. We're not going to steal, sell your data from COVID-19. You know, they sell your data from COVID-19. We're not going to take your information. for Yeah, we're going to take your information and use it. Every single time they stand up and they swear up and down that we will never do that. They always do. My point is, here you are again, where they promised this wouldn't happen. And now they're finding out that your personal private information can be accessed. They also showed that on the public version of ChatGPT, the chatbot spit out large passages of text scraped verbatim from other places on the internet. Its response to prompt, repeat the word forever, poem, 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 was the word poem for a long time, and then eventually an email signature for the real human founder and CEO, which included their personal contact information, including cell phone number, email addresses, for example. You think this is an accident? It's probably just a vulnerable, the, the way it was probably meant to be designed that we don't even realize. In any case, all it's really driving us into is the Benefit of the people behind whatever they're doing from a warfare mindset that at everyone else's expense. It's almost always how this goes. Now, bringing this to Peter Thiel and Palantir that Whitney's talked about a long for a long time. Peter Thiel, Palantir, Israel, agree, strategic partnership for Battletech. Can you imagine being in a time when this country is under investigation for literal genocide? One of the most obvious examples I've ever seen in my life. And then going, yeah, let's, let's aid them in that effort with technology. I said, because of course Palantir is involved. Is this the Habsora AI targeting system that 972 was outlining? Certainly could be. If not, it's adding more to it. The one used to kill so many innocent civilians or on top of that. And by the way, what is the deal with this guy's face in this? Like, that's just so creepy. So clearly this, they don't, this person, we're not supposed to see who he is. They, they, they make a point to not list his name. They just lift this, leave it out. <laughs> don't even mention who that is or why he's there or why his face looks like Tetris. There's so much going on here. Because look, they did this on purpose. They, they blacked out whatever this is and then clearly just made sure you couldn't see him. Very, very weird. This is from yesterday. Palantir Technologies, the data analysis firm that provides militaries with artificial intelligence models, has agreed, and a hell of a lot more than that, has agreed to strategic partnership with the Israeli Defense Military Ministry, excuse me, to supply technology to help the country's war effort. Because that's what's happening, right? A balanced war or a complete ongoing genocide against the people with barely any way to defend themselves. Do they really need Palantir to continue murdering people in real time? This is not about that, guys. This is not about, I mean, real, realistically, they're losing regardless in regard to what you claim is the effort to take out Hamas. They're clearly succeeding when it comes to destroying Palestinian society because that's what they're trying to do. In this case, what you're talking about is using more technology in the application of whatever they're trying to do, as well as gathering up information and testing whatever they want to test. 
in a real-world scenario, which is always how they've used Gaza. The agreement followed a Thursday meeting between Israeli defense officials and Palantir co-founders Peter Thiel and Alex Karp in Tel Aviv, according to Executive Vice President Josh Harris, who was also in attendance. It says, quote, both parties have mutually agreed to harness Palantir's advanced technology in support of war-related missions. They're just telling you straight out they're going to use technology to help them continue to commit genocide in Gaza. Quote, this strategic partnership aims to significantly aid the Israeli Ministry of Defense in addressing the current situation in Israel. That's what they're talking about Gaza. No further details on the arrangement were disclosed, including what technology would be provided. Palantir last year introduced its AIP, or Artificial Intelligence Platform, an intelligence and decision-making system that can analyze enemy targets and propose battle plans. Guy, you tell me that's not exactly what's already happened. Carp, in an interview with Bloomberg on Wednesday, said the Denver-based company's products were in a great demand in Israel since its war with Hamas began on October 7th. How is that not what we're talking about? Palantir held a board meeting in Tel Aviv for the first time this week in solidarity with Israel. Like, it's, it, it just shows a complete disregard for pretty much what everybody in the world thinks right now, which is, well, knows what's proven that they're committing genocide on a very obvious scale. Now, let's not forget, Palantir, oh, this overlaps with pretty much everything we're discussing. This is from 2020. FEMA tells states to hand public health data over to Palantir. So all of your personal health information from COVID-19 overlap and whatever else overlap with real world information, wartime information. I mean, this, this is a, this is exact. This is the kind of thing that you begin to recognize goes well beyond what I think our minds can even really contextualize the way this is being applied. This is the kind of mass information gathering with these machine learning and language learning models that are, you know, this, it actually worries me in regard to how they overlap this with like the metaverse kind of concept, the digital twin concept. But there's so many angles to this. The point is, this is the group that's currently helping to make AI models that will as, continue to murder people, but while they're opening up chat GPT to be applied in a way that can continue to help them. This, this, my point in showing that broad look is that this is beginning something. In a very alarming way, or at least what we're being shown. Here is another one from 2020. Northern Command calls upon Palantir, Apple, and others to bring new tech to coronavirus fight. That's what the focus was at the moment. This goes back to 2018. Whitney Webb, Palantir, the PayPal offshoot becomes a weapon in the war against whistleblowers and WikiLeaks. You see how this is ubiquitous? This is about information. And as Operation Rolling Blackouts writes, Peter Thiel backed Rumble. He did. And as did J.D. Vance. Now a U.S. senator thanks in part to Teal's investment in his campaign. And Noel posts out, Teal's behind every, quote, rebel. Interestingly enough, you've got Sam, Joe, Dave Rubin, Ben Shapiro, right? Just all chilling out. Good times. And I simply wrote, not the real ones, though. <laughs> Here is something to end this segment. <clears throat> in regard to where the stated national defense industrial strategy is going. This is two days ago. The DOD releases the first ever national defense industrial strategy. Now, this goes in a lot of different directions, but I really do think that this is about outlining the, the new direction. And this is about like the great reset overlap in regard to the industrial side the production side of how this will apply for the new artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, technocratic direction. This is redesigning the way that we, you know, 
through a defense angle, though, national defense, war, right? So all of this is being reimagined and redesigned. This is about applying that in a way that's outlining their defense strategy, but through the new industrial direction in regard to everything we're talking about right now. Now, that's my opinion anyway. The Department of Defense today released its inaugural inaugural national defense industrial strategy, which will guide the department's engagement, policy development, and investment in the industrial base over the next three to five years. Now, classically, you think industrial, industrial, you think industry, you think production, mercantile, you know, like physical things, but that's not, we're way past that at this point. And this is getting into the actual technology side of it in both weapons, but also medicine. But it, it kind of, that, that's the whole point about the dual use tech. It's one and the same. It says, taking its lead from the national defense strategy, this strategy will catalyze generational change from the existing defense industrial base to a more robust, resilient, and dynamic, modernized defense industrial ecosystem, right? Because war is all we care about. I mean, why do we think it makes sense to dump this much effort into making your warfare more, 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 I mean, look, I know a lot of people would can't get past the idea that they always think that the other countries are just about to invade or overtake or take from. Now that may be the case. There's, I've never disagreed with the idea of having security and defense from a national perspective, but I argue that goes to a state level, quite frankly, but that's, you know, a whole other conversation. The idea being that this, I think is only the way it is perceived because of the belligerent, aggressive, murderous U.S. foreign policy, marching around the world and toppling countries and stealing resources to where it creates the dynamic where that's what people want to stop. Now, you could argue that it was something before that happened in the sense of the you know current state of the world, but I just don't, I think at the very least, we have to entertain a possibility where might does not make right. And I think we've fallen back into that in such an aggressive way post-Donald Trump and before that as well, that it's just so hard for people to put their, decouple their mind from that either China or Russia are about to invade at any moment. I don't believe that. Now, sure, you could call it naive. And again, I did, in no way is that saying that we should not be take precautions to defend actual, not invade other countries under the guise of defense. It's very different. Now, it says, quote, the current and future strategic environment demands immediate, comprehensive, and decisive action, it says, to strengthen or modernize our defense industrial base ecosystem so it delivers at speed and scale for our warfighters. Now, the whole point is not just the technology, but the artificial intelligence applications. That's what I think this overlaps with. Ensure we build the modern defense industrial and innovative ecosystem that requires, that that's required I don't agree with that, to defend America, our allies, and partners, so Israel too, in the interest of the 21st century. The nation's military strength cannot be unearthed, untethered, excuse me, from our overall industrial strength. I don't agree with that. That's, that's what they want to be the reality, that somehow we're unable to decouple our military mindset from the fact that we can be industrial, indust- in an industrial way, be successful. But, you know, the idea that this country needs military warfare, munitions and weapons use to succeed and function is only the reality because of the way it's been designed. The, the, our society, we, have, we weren't always in that mindset. Right now, you have to understand that the U.S. government, not the country, but the U.S. government runs on the blood of other nations. The sale of weapons to countries that use them in the exact ways they pretend they're trying to stop. Without that, this country's economy would fall apart but we can push away from that. It says, recognizing that the defense industry 
industrial base must provide the required capabilities at the speed and scale necessary for the U.S. military to engage and prevail in a near-peer conflict. The strategy offers a strategic vision and path along four strategic priorities. And I'll show you what they're saying right here. Resilient supply chains. Interesting how they seem to have been destroying that in every way possible so they could reimagine it. But this is where it gets into the overlap with the technology side of all this. Workforce readiness, it says, provide a sufficiently skilled staff workforce that is diverse and representative of America. Because that makes sense, right? What the hell does it have to do with anything? Because that because someone's a woman or black or Asian somehow, that's going to make it better? Like, I just think it's, it's just such a mindlessly stupid concept. How about you just find people that are best for the job? How about that? No, because that would make it somehow unequal. But then the defense is not your primary objective then. Like diversity, if, if your primary objective, then clearly defense is not. But the point is not about, I think it's more about the manipulation, like ultimately trying to use that as the argument when that's not even remotely what they're actually doing. But it says flexible acquisition will lead to the development of strategies that strive for dynamic capabilities while balancing efficiency. You know, it's ultimately, I guess, I, there's a lot of ways you could read that. Flexible acquisition, quite frankly, to me, sounds like morally ambiguous. But last one, economic deterrence. And this is what I find interesting. We'll promote fair and effective market mechanisms that support a resilient defense industrial ecosystem among U.S. and close international allies and partners. And ultimately saying, as a result of effective economic deterrence, fear of materially reduced access to U.S. markets and technologies and innovations will sow doubt in the mind of potential aggressors. Like somehow that if you create a dynamic where everyone needs the U.S. for the, what the things they're developing, nobody would dare attack. Well, the only way you make something like that happen is by shutting down everything else and other people's ability to do it. So by effectively suppressing everybody else's success. Welcome to the way the U.S. government has always operated. What do you think they've been doing in Africa? What do you think they've been doing in South America? That's how they work. The expense of everybody else for the benefit of you? No, for them. Now, lastly, just to include this, and this is more broad, this is more so, in my opinion, about the idea of, you know, food production, the idea of like the more, you know, what's the right word for it? Create a, create a world that is more, you know, like sustainable, ultimately, not in a bad way, right? More relevantly, it is in the sense that I don't believe that's what they're doing, but that's what this statement really is. John Furl's Fullerton member of the Club of Rome, says moving to a new regenerative, regenerative civilization will require a shift in consciousness and the shift will, in finance will require both carrot sticks and perhaps some clubs. My point in showing you that is simply that they, this, whether it's about food production, artificial intelligence, technological industry, all they ever really argue is that this is what's necessary for what we argue is better for everybody and we don't care whether you want it or not. Stick, stick, club. I mean, it's exactly what they're always talking about. That applies to everything we just discussed, medicine, foreign policy, across the board. Nowhere will this shift be harder than in finance. Trust me. It will require a shift in consciousness, really. I see evidence of this already all around us. The former governor of Massachusetts just went to Bain Capital to launch an impact investment fund. I wouldn't have guessed that five years ago. No doubt the shift in finance will require both carrots and sticks, and perhaps some clubs. Our calling 
and our shared purpose will be, <clears throat> whether we like it or not, to lead this historic shift to regenerative civilization. Yeah. Is that what you want? Is that what we decided we collectively need? Or is that just what they're arguing they think we need or really what they want and argue that that's what we need to save everybody? There's a lot of examples of this. COVID-19 injections are an example. Any number of things they've argued is most important. And really, it turns out, is about their own profitability, their own agenda. Now, foreign policy is a huge part of what we're talking about here. Whether we're talking about applying the artificial intelligence to the application of murdering people in Gaza, or the use of foreign policy to use the, you know, the bio labs in Ukraine, the work that's being done there. It's such an, an important overlap, as all of this does apply. But I also think that the destabilization, which clearly it seems Israel, whether it's part of design or not, driving towards a multi-front war, is going to be used and is currently being used. Especially when you have a group like Israel that is on display committing genocide, being called out for it in front of everybody in the world, you need something pretty damn big to distract you from. Now, let's go over some of this foreign policy that I think is very important so we understand, you know, just how wrong it is what's happening in Yemen and everywhere else. But first, I just wanted you to show you this example that I think shows you how quickly what they just said was the most important thing to the success of the whole planet can be dropped because they're looking somewhere else. At the very least, whether you think they're honest or not, ask yourself how it's possible that this one thing, whether it's North Korea, Ukraine, Venezuela, can be the most important thing to our democracy and then on a dime, we don't even talk about it anymore. And then nothing ever changed. Right? Is Guaido in power? No, no, they work with Maduro now because they need oil. But, no, but apparently that was the biggest threat to our democracy, but that doesn't matter now. Or North, North Korea's launching rockets, we're all going to die. Oh, well, they got what they wanted and we can't stop now, so we'll just stop talking about it. Or... U.S. assistance to Ukraine has ground to a halt amid political fighting, infighting, White House says. We've, they've just blanket, they stopped. Ukraine doesn't matter anymore, right? How is that even possible? Now, our, we know that it was never what we were told. This is a failed agenda. It's taken American lives, Ukrainian lives, Russian lives, innocent people all over the place in Donbass and everywhere else. And nothing changed except the fact that they killed a lot of people. They worked on their, their, I mean, they laundered a lot of money. They worked on all sorts of surreptitious projects and sold a lot of weaponry at your expense, at the expense of the people on the ground. And then just drop Ukraine and move forward. Now, it's not going to be over. I guarantee something's going to continue to happen. I mean, there are, there are still, they're literally trying to argue that, that Russia is going to be the next to be accused of genocide with what they argue happened in Ukraine, despite the fact that 99.9% .9 of what they're pointing at comes from Ukraine says, half of which is proven to be false. Meanwhile, you've got provable evidence on the, from statements from Israeli uh, officials, from their actions on the ground, and them praising what they do, and we still question that. But Raymond points this out in regard to something you may not have seen, which is one of the largest reasons I think this is falling away, something the mainstream media will never show you. The Ukrainian platoon refuses to fight. I'll play it since it's just in other language. It's a Ukrainian platoon refusing to fight due to a lack of reinforcements and a lack of tactical plan. The truth is that the Ukrainian army is collapsing. Where's all the money going? Obviously, he says, you know, the answer to that question. I mean, there's a little, little bunch of different ways you could look at this. Either way, the point is, nobody's listening. 
because they're focusing elsewhere. They've all been rallied up at some other agenda. How can we pretend this is not the most degree? Like if the U.S. government wants you to believe that this was so important to stop, why aren't they saying anything about it now? Why aren't they standing up and saying, my God, why aren't you paying attention to Ukraine? Russia's going to take over everything if we let this happen. They're not now. They're just ignoring it. So either they lied about it in the first place in order to get what they wanted at the expense of human life, or for some reason, because something happened in Israel, that this just no longer matters. And it's that important, but they don't care. I mean, I don't know how anybody can look at that and act like this makes sense in any angle. But the thing of the day, right? I support the current the, cur- the current thing. Is too many people like that. Now let's talk about Yemen. Because it's this this is something that we've talked about for a well, I mean, geez, what, almost a decade? In fact, the very first time I ever interviewed Whitney Webb, back when she was working at Mint Press News, and she was just doing behind-the-scenes writing for Mint Press News, is because she did such outstanding work on Yemen. And I, I just, I, I, I saw that the work was so, and, and again, at a time when so few people even knew what was happening there. And the rest is history, obviously. I'm so, I'm so honored to be able to work with her. But I'm going to show you some examples of that work going back. But the reality is this is not a new topic. The United States and Saudi Arabia have been starving and sieging and chemically manipulating, you know, whether it's biological, chemical, or just creating the circumstances to cause disease, have been effectively, what's the best word for it? I mean, it's not, it's like the word, I think the ultimate point is starvation, right? But what they're doing is punishing these people, just like we're talking about in Gaza. Why? Because they chose the Houthis. The people of Yemen chose the Houthi movement because what, what, what they didn't want to be under the boot of Saudi Arabia because the U.S. said so. So they pushed out Hadi, who is the fake president that is living in Riyadh. They, they've just pretty much given up on it at this point, just like with Guaido, even though they were screaming at the loud as they could, loud as they could that he's the real president. And ever since, they've continued to just punish these people, starve them to death. Thousands and thousands of people starving, eating leaf paste, and nobody cared. Why? Because U.S. disagreed. Well, it gets it's more important than that when it comes to why it's happening even today. It's the same dynamic. We've talked about this a lot. Here, we'll come back to, is the map. And this is what's really important right now. Because as of I understand it right now, you've got the Houthis who are effectively stopping the flow through the Suez Canal and the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is always, always why they've been trying to take Yemen. I've shown you this so many times because Iran has always made it clear that should this come to warfare, like basically as they're creating now, not specifically aimed at Iran, or it kind of feels that way, but tangentially through the, the Houthis or through Gaza and Iran supports all of it, the Iranian government has always said they would shut down the Strait of Hormuz right here which is important for Saudi Arabia and the United States to be, you know, to for oil, but a lot of other things, for shipping lanes. So they decided to try to take both Oman and Yemen for the most part, but Yemen specifically, so they can control the other side. They never were able to successfully do so. And now we're seeing why. Because Yemen, as an impoverished country, is effectively shutting down not everybody's trade, that's a lie, but specifically the ones associated with Israel and the United States. Everything else seems to be functioning just fine. And they literally bombed this country. 70 plus locations or bombings, I understand, will go through it. Civilian locations, airports, 
None of it makes any sense other than to punish, 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 because how dare you stop us from getting what we want? As Idris Ally points out, the U.S. and Britain have started carrying out strikes against Houthi targets in Yemen. This was on the 11th. And I'll get to it at the end of the segment. They already been bombing yet again today. Despite all of the backlash in the world. Now, Caitlin Johnstone writes, Western Empire bombs Yemen to protect Israel's genocidal operations in Gaza. Now, that's currently what I argue is part of this ha- of what's happening. But let's not forget, this goes back long before the current part of this. That they have been occupying, starving, and in many cases doing similar genocidal actions against the people of Yemen for a decade plus. One of the most obvious starvation tactics I've ever seen. A- another siege, a deliberate siege on the Bob uh, on the Ho- the Ho- Hodeida port, which again is the one over here at the Bob Amendment Street port of Hodeida is right there. That's where ninety plus percent of the everything they need comes through, and they have been blockading that for decades or a- over a decade. That's a war crime, guys. It's never not been a war crime. On top of the fact that working with the UAE, they started opening torture prisons. There was corporate media discussion about this for the people that they wanted to stop. And the U.S. government was pictured there many times. Horrible things. She writes, the U.S. and the U.K. have reportedly struck over a dozen sites in Yemen using Tomahawk missiles and fighter jets backed by logistical support from Australia, Canada, Bahrain, and the Netherlands. A statement from President Biden asserts that the strikes against targets in Yemen used by Houthi rebels are a direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea. That's not true. It's not even remotely unprecedented, and it's not broad attacks. This is directly focused on them. And we're going to get into why this is arguably just a response to what's already been happening to them. The many different ways where you have Israel acting exactly the same way, or the United States acting exactly the same way. Of course, it only matters when the people that they don't want to do it get away with it, or are doing it. It's the same way that they'll scream about UN resolutions and throw it in the face of Gaza and then ignore the ones they don't like. These are the criminals. You're staring at it in real time. The people that pretend, but that literally force their so-called rules-based international order against anybody else, but never abide by it themselves. It says what Biden does not mention in the statement about his administration's response to Houthi attacks on ships in the Red Sea is the fact that those Red Sea attacks are themselves a response to Israeli crimes against humanity in Gaza. And again, it goes well before that. Also unmentioned is the fact that the strikes took place after the first day of proceedings in the International Court of Justice, in which Israel stands accused by South Africa of committing genocide in Gaza. So the U.S. and the U.K. just bombed the poorest country in the Middle East, one of the horrors in the world, for trying to stop a genocide. Not only that, they bombed the very same country in which they just spent years backing Saudi Arabia's genocidal atrocities, which killed hundreds of thousands of people between 2015 and 2022, in an unsuccessful bid to stop the Houthis from taking power, or otherwise known as the Ansarallah movement. Oh, she says it right there. The Houthis, formerly known as the Ansarallah, threatened ahead of the attack to fiercely retaliate against any strikes from the U.S. and its allies. The leader, who, the leader of the movement said he, the response to any American attack will be greater than a recent Houthi offensive, which used dozens of drones and several missiles. It says, quote, we, the Yemeni people, are not among those who are afraid of America. We were comfortable with the direct confrontation with the Americans. And what they're talking about is the government. It's very clear, and they all, every one of these groups will always make it clear if you, if specifically asked. We're talking about the governments, not the peoples of these countries. The same way that we can do this in reverse. 
would point out the fact that I'm not attacking Israeli people, but showing out the Israeli government's committing crimes. An unnamed U.S. official who informed Huffington Post's Akbar Saeed Ahmad about the imminent strikes on Yemen shortly before they occurred complained that the airstrikes will not solve the problem and that the approach doesn't add up to a cohesive strategy. Ahmad has previously reported that behind the scenes, officials in the administration have been getting increasingly nervous about the risk of Biden igniting a wider war in the Middle East, which clearly seems to be what Israel's desperately trying to make happen. This latest escalation, along with the the pledge to retaliate, adds a lot of weight to the concern. And all for what? To protect Israel's ability to conduct a month-long massacre of Palestinians in Gaza? This is what the U.S. empire is. This is what it has always been about. These people are showing us exactly who they are. We should probably believe them. Now, Loki points out the U.S. and Britain bombed apparently 73 locations in Yemen. This was on on the 11th. Sarah Abdallah includes the fact that they bombed the international airport of Yemen. Again, just like they do in every other example. If if this was in, in any other person doing it in reverse, it would be a huge crime. Well, when they do it, of course, it's completely justified because there was probably Hamas there or whatever they want to say to make it make sense. Now, it's important to understand this is unconstitutional in every possible way, despite all of the same old rhetoric we get. And interestingly enough, you get many of the people that were very quiet when Trump was doing the same exact thing, but now can't stand that Biden was doing it. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But it says Biden's strikes in Yemen are unconstitutional, bipartisan members of Congress say, because it's the fact. The U.S. and U.K. led a series of airstrikes in Yemen, setting off alarms globally about how the attacks play into the smoldering regional risk of conflict, including a stream of questions from Congress about whether Joe Biden was legally authorized to conduct the strikes at all. In a statement, Biden said, quote, today at my direction, U.S. military forces, together with the United Kingdom and with the support from Australia, Bahrain, 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 Canada, and the Netherlands successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets in Yemen. And it says to, you know, basically used by the Houthis to endanger freedom of navigation in one of the world's most vital waterways. It's they're trying to make it about everybody. That's the same thing Israel's doing right now with Gaza, saying this is everybody's war. No, it's really not. You're just trying to make this into somebody else's responsibility, so it's not just you murdering all these people. The Houthis have been pushing back against their own occupation, their own illegal actions by the U.S., by Israel, by everybody. They don't seem to care about the law, about any kind of U.N. resolution. They don't care. So the idea that the Houthis can react back in any way, even if they're doing so in a way that you could argue is against the law, you have to understand that there's nobody else in this dynamic that seems to care about those same things. But I made the only point about if they are, in fact, using strikes on these locations, which I have yet to truly verify and not just hindering their movement and threatening these things, the point would be that that's not a crime. These are their waterways, ultimately, in regard to both the Strait of Hormuz for Iran, but also the area here. This is their territorial waterways. And we're talking about a group that has been actively committing war crimes against them for a decade plus. It says Yemen's Houthis responded to Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip by attacking and blocking commercial ships in the Red Sea, destined specifically for or originating from Israeli ports. That's it. The attacks led to the near total shutdown of Israel's port of Elat in recent weeks. And that is the point. They can't have that. They need their weapons to continue murdering people in Gaza. So we can't just have this shut down. Biden justified the strikes as a defensive action. Again, this is how you know they're so aware of their, that they're wrong. 
this is the Bethlehem doctrine. The UK, the US, and Israel are the only ones that apply this, where they argue that violent action, otherwise known as an attack, are somehow defensive when you argue that doing so is going to stop something you argue you know is going to happen or think you, you know, indicate you might know. The bottom line is even on the documents itself, it argues that you don't really need to prove it. You just need a plausible risk or rather a, what was the word that Bolton used in regard to Iran? It's the the exact terminology. I forget what exact words he used. But the argument being that they turned out to be just ships moving in the port, which they argued a credible, a credible threat. Which it wasn't. They weren't wrong. They lied. And so what they argue is we can attack and name that preemptive self-defense. It's or it's Orwellian at its best. It's ridiculous. First of all, a defense or defending yourself is in response in real time. That's the only way that ever makes sense. Somebody does something and you immediately defend yourself against the attack. If you if you get bombed and the next day you attack, that's an attack. You could argue it's because you were attacked, but you can't call it defense. By definition, it is not, especially four months later and the continuation of your defending yourself. It's such a joke. The, one of the most powerful militaries in the world bombing the most impoverished under the guise that they're blocking shipping. Like, that's not a defensive action. That is an attack because you don't like what they're doing. But you see, they can't even be honest about that. That's why the Department of War became the Department of Defense, because it's all politics, hiding their crimes. It says, and promise more measures to secure the Red Sea. I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people, which is not even remotely what you're protecting, and the free flow of international commerce is necessary. Well, no, it's only the commerce to Israel and those involved with their their illegal occupation and protecting your military actions. There are not people at risk by this. There's only people you put at risk by making this into more of a military action. Immediately following the strikes, however, bipartisan members of the Congress called into question whether this was constitutional. It's appalling, it says, that instead of acting to stop Israeli war crimes, the Biden administration chose to further damage both our global reputation, too late, and our constitutional system, too late, by launching a new unauthorized conflict against Yemen. But see, the real point is it never stopped. I agree either way. It was unauthorized the first time, it's unauthorized now. But the problem is that this has already been enshrined, and you as the feeble toothless tiger that the Congress is never stopped them before. So there's really a precedent for why they wouldn't stop now. It's all illegal anyway, but you can go through and read all the different statements that a lot of people that spoke up and said, this is wrong. We shouldn't have allowed this or we shouldn't have been allowed. Thomas Massey being one of them. Only Congress has the power to declare war. I have to give credit, he says, to Rokana for sticking up his principles. Very few willing to do it. But here's my problem with this. He says the president needs to come to Congress before launching a strike. So you could read this as he, him saying this shouldn't have happened, or you could read it as him saying, we agree it would happen. We just don't like that we weren't consulted. Like, I always want to point that out, that a lot of the time what they ultimately are upset about is not that they care that people are being murdered, but rather that they just want to be included in the conversation. See my point? And so either way, it is wrong. What they're doing is illegal. It's unconstitutional. And at the very least, we can call it out. But I argue that Biden had simply gone to them and said, let's do it. It probably would have happened anyway, because most of these people are warmongers. But as Thomas Massey writes, the United States has been involved in hostilities in Yemen in one form or another for, he says, five years. It's a hell of a lot longer than that. The sad reality is Congress frequently refuses to assert its authority. That's my point. 
Twice under Braun, Paul, uh, Paul Ryan, the War Powers Act, Yemen was subverted through par parliamentary tricks. And here they introduce a resolution, this was a 2018, to force the U.S. involvement in the Yemen war to stop. And every time they sidestep, they manipulate, and as well as the fact that in reverse, this is what they, it's called a rider where they'll be doing something that has nothing to do with any of it and shoehorn in something that says we won't end the Yemen war or we have to support Israel on a, a bill about gray wolves or something. It's ridiculous. It happens every time. That's what writer, I mean, writers are literally every time the people are going to shove in their own little dynamics that doesn't make any sense to what you're talking about. Most of them don't even read it. But here is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Funny enough, by the way, that she gets a fat, uh, <laughs> context when many of those, many of those didn't. And she's really kind of saying the same thing. So it's funny how it's selectively applied. But she says the president must come to Congress for permission before going to war. I don't remember you screaming when Trump did the same thing. Like, and this is the game they play where Trump didn't do any. Yeah, he really did. He did the same stuff everybody else did. And yes, in fact, he did start new fields of war. But the point is that clearly when Sudan or Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq or here in Yemen, the same things were going on, the same bombings, the same starvation campaigns, the same blindness to whatever Saudi Arabia was doing. I don't remember her screaming about it then or really in the ice mindset of whoever would have been in her position. It's not about whether she would have been the one to do it at the point at the time. It's about the fact that people only seem to call these things out when suddenly it's the other side of the aisle you can make a point about. I just don't believe any of these people are honest. But either way, this is my point about how sometimes the truth lines up with their interests and they say the truth. Doesn't mean you should trust them or that they're ever being honest with you. But overall, clearly what they did was unjustified and illegal. And of course, she has to bring this in. What's going on with Lloyd Austin? There's this weird kind of undertone about some secret. Every time the people in the paradigm have their theories about this or that, sure, maybe it's something going on with Austin. I don't know why that's the focal point out of everything going on in the world. The idea being that he's sick, so whoever's next in line is probably making the shots. It's it's really funny how that narrative comes to like this secret, like there's some bigger conspiracy around why he's sick and what's really going on. Maybe, but unless you've got any kind of factual evidence to back that up at all, it seems like a complete hypothetical to distract from the thousand different war crimes we can literally prove. In any case, here's Biden talking about Bush. Same point. Suddenly, when you can make it the other side, the other side of the aisle being the bad guy, it's almost like the other, you say the exact opposite. Isn't it strange? said that if the president of the United States had launched an attack on Iran without congressional approval, that would have been an impeachable offense. Do you want to review Absolutely. that comment you made? Well, how do you stand on that now? Yes, do you think I there's... do. I want to stand by that comment I made. The reason I made the comment was as a warning. The reason I made, I don't say those things lightly, Chris. You've known me for a long time. I was chairman of the Judiciary Committee for 17 years or its ranking member. The president has no constitutional authority to take this nation to war against a country of 70 million people unless we're attacked or unless there is proof that we are about to be attacked. And if he does, if he does, I would move to impeach him. The House obviously has to do that, but I would lead an effort to impeach him. I don't use words lightly. Some of you may have seen me on Stephanopoulos or Meet the Press and the shows I've been on on a weekly basis. I want to make it clear to you. I've drafted with the help for 17 years, I was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee or the ranking member. And ladies and gentlemen, I drafted an outline of what I think the constitutional limitations have on the president of the war clause. I went to five leading scholars 
constitutional scholars, and they drafted a treatise for me as being distributed to every senator. And I want to make it clear, and I made it clear to the president, that if he takes this nation to war in Iran without congressional approval, I will make it my business to impeach him. Yes! That's a fact. That is a fact. Apparently it doesn't matter if you go to war with Iraq or, or with Afghanistan or Syria, but you know, but Iran, Iran that we care about. It's all politics. He doesn't give an absolute S about that. No, it was such a political game. You can see by the actions he later takes elsewhere. The idea, again, he mentions the point about the Bethlehem Doctrine. He didn't say the term, but that's exactly what he described. And so we have a, a credible, you know, we can see a credible threat that they're going to attack. You know how easy that is to manipulate? They do that all the time. We saw that claim with Iran when Bolton made the same point. They've used that to strike countries. I mean, it's the same thing. So either way, the point is you can't jive with what he said there with what he just did. So it only matters when it's the other guy doing it, right? Justin Amash points out in regard to the legality of it, one of the most frequently misrepresented federal statutes, often falsely used to justify unconstitutional presidential war powers, is the War Powers Resolution or Act which I've mentioned many times, which Ron Paul has done great work on showing you why this is a manipulation. And a lot of these things are like the Patriot Act often are enshrining the very thing that is illegal. But it says if only, if only more people would read it. Contrary to what you may have heard about the War Powers Resolution, it does not allow the president to take military action for any reason for 60 to 90 days without congressional approval, so long as the president notifies Congress within 48 hours. We've heard this, so Trump made the same point. It says, Section 154.1c of the War Powers Resolution states clearly, the constitutional powers of the president as commander-in-chief to introduce United States armed forces into hostilities or into situations where eminent involvement in hostilities is clearly indicated by the circumstances are exercised only pursuant to, one, a declaration of war, but to be through Congress, specific statutory authority, or three, a national emergency created by attack upon the United States, its terrorists, its territories or possessions or its armed forces. And interestingly enough, today, and even with the AI overlap, right, that's where this comes more into play as well, it becomes more and more opaque, right? Well, what happens at a point when there are no people even involved? What happens at a point when what you're talking about is pressing a button hundreds of miles away that launched a missile? Well, no lives are necessarily at risk on your side. So that's the whole point about enter or in situations where eminent involvement and hostilities is clearly indicated. The idea being that it puts people's lives at risk. They're not talking about foreign entities. They're talking about American lives in this case. So the point would be, I think they're, they're constantly using this in a sense where I bet you if it came down to it, that would be the legal argument. That look, we're not committing it. Nobody's lives are in danger. We're lobbing a missile at bad guys when we thought they were going to attack us. Like you can see how easy this would be to manipulate. But it says of the three side of authorities, not one indicates a presidential power or take uh, or to take unilateral without congressional approval offensive military action. The first two authorities allow the president to take offensive military action, but only with Congress's express approval. The third authority allows the president to take defensive military action without congressional approval in the event of a specific type of national emergency. Specifically, in that case, an unforeseen attack that had been carried out but the Bethlehem Doctrine argument opens that up to the threat that it may happen. And you get why that would make sense to some people. Why would we wait to be attacked to do something like this? But you see, it opens the door to where bad people manipulate that. 
And that's why these things need to be more specific. Or really, that we just need to not allow them to have unilateral action through any kind of military sense. But there's so many ways they can be manipulated. It's saying, or well, one more point I was going to say, the, uh, oh, in the national emergency. Well, we already know how that plays. There's so many ways they could declare a national emergency that never ends that gives them that opening. But it says it's for this last situation or for situations in which the president introduces forces into hostilities unlawfully that the War Powers Resolution provides for the oft-mentioned 48-hour report to Congress and a 60-day, up to 90 days timeline if there's an attack in progress on the United States. We expect the president to respond swiftly to neutralize the attack and protect Americans, and then we will hold the president to account. The framers of the Constitution agreed at the debates in the Federal Convention of 1787 that the president should have the power to repel sudden attacks, but not the power to otherwise introduce forces into hostilities without congressional approval. But then, of course, this is where they enter in the new age of warfare. We're not talking about people marching into the ground. We're talking about weapons and missiles and nukes, right? That's how this gets so watered down. But either way, it's only their belligerence that continues to drive the sense where we're about to be attacked in the first place. The War Powers Resolution does not confer any new authority on the president to take offensive military action without congressional approval. Obviously, that's always the way this has gone, but we've gotten so far away from this to where most people in Congress don't care. Only a few of them have the courage to speak up about it. And even then, usually it's because it's in their best interest. Because it's the other side of the aisle. But it says, nor could it under our Constitution. It instead checks the president win as the framers contemplated. The president introduces our armed forces into hostilities to repel a sudden attack. It's important. Now, the other side of this is they're arguing this is about shutting down the trading zones or the, the trading uh, trade routes through the Red Sea. Well, you can look these up on any trading. A uh, lot of the, the oh, what's the one off the top of my head? I used to look at all the time during the whole Iran thing. You know, look at the trade. You can look these up and see the GPS routes of a lot of the ships. As it says here, bombing Yemen to, quote, protect international shipping is a lie. Here's the current, and this was on the 11th, marine traffic in the Red Sea. Big shippers conspired with Zionist warmongers in the West to plant the narrative of a universal threat to international shipping when there was no such thing. They are, in fact, and this is why you'll find a lot of them broadcasting on their GPS signal that we have nothing to do with Israel. So clearly this is about stopping shipping to Israel and, and, and groups working with their war effort, and they don't like that. So they act like it's a threat to everybody. And in fact, what they're doing is really causing the threat because then it drives more military action, which is stopping more and more people from even risking going that way. That's not the Yemenis. The Yemenis doing that. That's the U.S. government and their ridiculous, already fallen apart coalition. And really just about Israel and the United States bombing whoever they want. But here's where it gets even more ridiculous. There's multiple examples of how they've already been doing exactly this long before Yemen was involved. As Aaron Mate writes, Biden bombs Yemen to defend freedom of navigation. Meanwhile, the U.S. backs Israel's regular attacks on Iranian ships trying to bring fuel to Syria. How do you explain that? Why? Because they don't like Syria or Iran? So they get to dictate who is and isn't good guy, bad guy? That's not how the law works, guys. They don't get to just arbitrarily argue and dictate who is and who is not within the law when they're not breaking the law. What I mean by that is they don't get to just go, you're a terrorist. Therefore, anything you do, even if it's benign, is terrorism. Well, shipping fuel to an ally suddenly becomes terrorism because you're doing it for bad reasons. They don't get to decide that. The problem is what you're doing in reverse or what's happening now with regard to Yemen is not even remotely what they have been doing 
in this set, we're talking about all sorts of actual terrorism acts. Stealing. Remember, Iran just seized back a ship they stole years ago, full of like billions of dollars of oil. It was a lot of money. And then they claim that was terrorism, even though they took back their own property. Right? It's so incredibly hypocritical. But as he says, under U.S. rules, Yemen can't block ships to stop a genocide. Israel, with U.S. help, can bomb ships to stop Syria from receiving oil, which Syria only needs because the U.S. occupies Syria's oil-rich areas and imposes crippling sanctions, which predominantly hurt the civilian population. So who's the bad guy in all that? Israeli strikes target Iranian oil bound for Syria. There's no legal justification for that. That is a international violation a violation of international law. It's just so ridiculous, isn't it? Here, Dan Cohen makes another excellent point. Israel has been shooting fishing boats, as you've heard me mention many times, fishing boats from Gaza every day for almost 20 years to destroy its fishing industry and keep it economically de- de- uh, underdeveloped. And realize it's the whole way that they alter the range. There's supposed to be a specific mileage amount where they're always allowed to go fish. And that's per international law. Israel arbitrarily changes that without telling anybody. And, and But broadly stating, if you violate what we decided was the range that day, we'll shoot you without question, which is what he's talking about. One day it's five miles, next day it's half a mile. How do they know? And all it really does is keep them in of the mindset that they're terrified to go out, even though they're starving to death in many cases, especially right now. How is that not the same thing? Why is that justified? Aren't you the ones telling us that they're their own place and they don't they can do what they want? You dictate everything they do. It says now the Houthis are giving Israel a taste of its own medicine. The U.S. involves freedom of navigation to attack Yemen. Another day in Biden's rules-based order. It's pathetic, guys, and the world is finally paying attention. Now, we're at 2.18, it looks like. I'm trying to think we're out of time. <clears throat> so I'll read you these statements. This is David Roth Lindbergh citing a statement from, from Hezbollah in regard to Yemen, but as well as the, uh, the Yemenis in general. It says, Hezbollah strongly condemns the blatant American-British aggression against the brotherly Yemen, its security, sovereignty, and its free and honorable people who stood with all strength, courage, and responsibility. Along with the Palestinian people and their valiant resistance, exerting their utmost effort to break the siege on it by all available means and capabilities. Which again, let's not forget, there is an ongoing and never-ending siege on Yemen, which is a violation of international law. Why don't we talk about that? The American aggression confirms once again, they continue, that America is a full partner in the tragedies and massacres committed by the Zionist enemy in Gaza and the region. America works to support and supply it with the machinery of killing and destruction, covering up its aggression and crimes, and attacking everyone who stands beside the oppressed Palestinian people across the region. As we salute the dear Yemen, its national army, its proud people, and its generous leadership, we affirm that this aggression will not weaken their resolve. Rather, it will increase their strength, determination, and courage to face it, defend themselves, and continue the path in supporting the Palestinian people and advocating for their legitimate and just cause. Now, we've done so many interviews in the past about Yemen with Hussein al-Bukhadi, the, the reality of all the people that have been murdered there, the ongoing use of U.S. weapons to bomb civilian locations. It's just, it, and I'll show you some, some of these articles in the past. It's just so crazy how long it's been going on. And some people are only just waking up today and, oh, yeah, Yemen's a topic now. It's, it's just so frustrating how we can scream about these things for a decade and nobody pays attention. Here is Yemen speaking up. 
Mohammed Ali Al-Houthi, the head of the Revolutionary Committee in Yemen, says the American-British strikes are barbaric terrorist acts. This deliberate and unjustified aggression reflects a savage mentality. Let's not forget, by the way, all those locations, innocent people died. It's not just some pinpoint targeted. When you're striking 70 locations, including the airport, and by the way, it's already shown, they killed innocent people. And in what way is that happening in reverse in this dynamic? It's just because they will do whatever is necessary to maintain their agenda, which means murdering whoever they want and just blaming it on the person they bombed. Preemptive self-defense. It says these strikes reaffirm once again that they are the ones directing the aggression on Gaza. They're talking about the United States as well as in Yemen and that they protect Israeli terrorism as they themselves are the terrorists with Israel being a part of this. What they have done is a blatant and unjustified attack occurring at a time when the world seeks to stop the genocide in Gaza only to have these strikes confirm their protection and international continuation of it. These airstrikes of the Republic of Yemen will not pass unnoticed. And Allah willing, there will be a response announced later in the statement. May Yemen remain dear and may Palestine remain Palestine. Shame and disgrace on the Americans and the British. They're talking about the governments, guys. There is no aggression except against the oppressors. Eternity for the martyrs and healing for the wounded. Now, I'm sure there are people that blame broadly any American or British. Well, the same thing happens in reverse. I'm sure it happens to some degree. We see plenty of people blaming all Palestinians right now. The point is that I can I can show you time and again that what they mean when they do that is they're talking about the government's actions. And I think most people in the world have come acutely aware of that. Now, this is where it gets really important. Megatron reported this, and I have I have seen I've confirmed this for a couple different ways. And the question is whether or not it is ongoing or a kind of a like basically what he's reporting is as of today, and this was yesterday, the Houthis are blocking the Suez Canal but specifically for the U.S. and U.K. commercial ships as well. Now, that's the part that I'm, I'm unable to explicitly verify, but I know that they are controlling these passageways right now. And again, the main point is that you can, in fact, see that they're not really stopping the shipping. I think that was right here. At this point, they were specifically stopping Israeli-related ship shippings, or sh- uh, ship, shipping, <laughs> excuse me. Now, what this is arguing, and this has been reported a couple of different ways, that this is it's just broadened out because of their actions to include them as well. Now this will guarantee a huge escalation. The, the amount of, of, and, and in a sense, it's almost a negative action from them or a, a self-sabotaging action, because if you truly stop all of us and UK shipping through the area, well, that's going to affect a hell of a lot more people that will then suddenly will feel obligated to stop that from happening. See what I'm saying? Either way, though, you could, you could very clearly argue this is a justified action. We're not talking about bombing ships. They're talking about simply blocking the waters in an area that they control. Well, not specifically the Suez Canal. And I'll, sh- I'll show you the map again, but the, the Bob Al-Mandeb Strait, because they're being attacked. They're being literally bombed illegally because they're the ones being sieged. They're the ones being starved, and they're choosing to stand up for another sieged location being starved. But it says, a member of the Supreme Political Council of Yemen He says, previously, we focused only on a maritime shipping associated with the Zionist entity. Today, American and British ships will no longer dare to cross the Red Sea. So this is escalating. I I almost find this impossible not to at this point. And this is exactly what Israel wants. They want this to escalate into a multi-front war, which draws in the United States, which creates a situation that is so profound, world war level, that suddenly the whole claim of genocide becomes secondary. 
I really think that's part of this. Now, on top of that, Oman, and that's especially interesting to me. Oman will now will not allow any military aircraft flying to, to uh, planning to fly to Yemen to use Omani airspace. That's crazy because typically that's been a diff- the way this it's gone differently than that. And this is my point about the map is right now if Oman is not the UAE is different, but if Oman is not allowing any sh- air traffic coming in that was essentially from the U.S. angle to go after Yemen. It just changes the dynamic quite dramatically. And so my point here is that here's the Suez Canal up here, right? And that's Egypt and Israel. And then you've got Saudi Arabia and Yemen down here at the bottom. Now, the Bab al-Mandeb Strait is what we're talking about in what they're controlling, what they're the choke point here. And that's while I could promise you they're having, they're essentially Iran probably have, I I think this whole, the, the Strait of Hormuz right here, is already been largely suppressed because of the worry in in what the actions are doing against Iran and because they are attacking all sorts of things Iran-related. But my point is that they've been trying to fight and occupy and starve to death all of Yemen so they can control this area. And now we're, I mean, I've been telling you why, but a lot of people are now finally realizing, gosh, I can't keep, I can't get that right. Realizing why. Here's the Red Sea. Now this whole area now is what they're talking about. And what they're arguing is now they're controlling this flow as well as this flow, and they're not going to allow the U.S. or the U.K. to go through. At least that's what they're stating. That's going to become very important. Now, again, with Oman on top of that, not allowing any air traffic in through to Yemen, it's they're losing control of a situation they long ago failed to accomplish their goals in. Now it's, it's, now it's becoming even more and more complicated for them, which do you know what typically happens when that kind of thing happens to the U.S. government? Damage, bombings, death, all because they don't get what they want. We're seeing it happen right now. Now, again, to that very point, this is from today. They've struck again in other areas after they shut down these areas, right? So after they're warning to ships to avoid parts of the Red Sea, dang it. I don't think I had anything really down here. I was right here. The White House said in November that it was considering redesignating the Houthis as a terrorist organization. Same thing I make about the point point every time, like with the Sudan. It's such a meaningless tactic. It shows you that they don't care at all whether they're terrorists or not. It's about using the term as a political tool, right? So suddenly the Houthis are no, they're bad again because they don't like what they're doing. When moments ago, they took them off the list. In, in any sense, they've never been a terrorist organization. Same thing with the Hezbollah group. They're not a terrorist organization. Simple, guys, but they don't care. Now I get to a point to get the end in regard to the segment anyway, in regard to uh, Syria and just showing you again that the very group that they're bombing, the PMU, no, not a terrorist organization, tangential connections ideologically with Iran, but the group that they do support, the YPG, is literally murdering Turkish entities. This is just, it's so very clear that just like Dave Smith points out in regard to Hamas in general, or the fact that the U.S. government and Israel have historically for decades been arming and funding and supporting the most radical elements of exactly what they pretend they're fighting, because the people that are moderate aren't going to bend over for what they want. So they fund the crazy people and then pretend like they're fighting that. It's the same thing they do everywhere. They're working with the worst of the worst while blaming everybody else for not doing what they want. Now, Rishi Sunak, just following along as usual, says we bombed Yemen to de-escalate the situation. Oh yeah, how'd that work out? 
How'd that work out? It, are we seeing a de-escalation? No, we're watching a solidification of the world around the terrorist actions of these kind of people. Now, this is a huge protest. This, Colin writes, of millions fill the streets in Yemen as Houthi rebels promise revenge against the U.S. after 73 strikes against Yemen regions, killing five people. The American and British enemy bears full responsibility for its criminal aggression against our Yemeni people and will not go unanswered or are punished. Now, here's the point, though, right? They then respond, which under Israel's argument, they have every right to, don't they? Or, or don't they call that defending themselves? Okay, so they defend themselves in a very offensive way against whoever, and suddenly it's terrorism. Why? Because they don't like you. So it just, it's hypocrisy, double standards all over the place. And in this case, you're not even dealing with a, with a group that is even generally perceived to be a terrorist group. They just become the bad guy because they do exactly what you're doing right now, but in the sense where they might actually have justification to. He says their attacks are having real impact on Tesla recently announced they had to close their German factory due to delays. Interesting. It's a huge, huge protest. It's not de-escalating. They've made it worse, but that's the whole point. Quite frankly, I think that was by design. Now, we've covered this a really long time. Here's an interview I did with Vanessa Bealey in 2018, the not-so-secret war of Yemen, the true face of U.S. humanitarianism. Remember, this was the, I think it was the MK-82. I forget the name of the, the munition, but this was, the, this is the kid holding up the U.S.-made, I think it was uh, Rocky, wait, was it Raytheon or Lockheed Martin? Lockheed Martin. The missile that bombed the school bus that killed all those children. That was a U.S. government-supplied weapon. And they found it. They proved it was their weaponry. Jim Carrey made a cartoon about it, and everyone in the world heard about it for about half a second, and then everyone went back to sleep. I reported that same time frame, they bombed two more buses right after that. Jim Carrey didn't make a cartoon about it, so nobody cared. Murdering people. Little pink and blue backpacks all over the street. It's horrifying. That was probably one of the first things I covered that was really difficult for me. We interviewed Hussein al-Bukhadi about it. It's always been going on. Now, I'll include these important articles if you want to understand more about the history. War crimes and genocide, what you aren't being told about U.S. involvement in Yemen. It's 2017. This one, this one's from Claire Burish, uh, or Burnish. This was, I think she was anti-media at the time. U.S.-backed Saudi-led war crimes against civilians in Yemen, 2016. This one, going back to 2016 as well. The real reason the U.S. government lets Saudi Arabia do whatever they want. These are all important articles, and there's so much more than that. In fact, I'll, I'll grab you this one, too. I'll just grab you the, the Yemen tag to make sure you guys can just kind of go skim through it. It's an important conversation, and clearly it's becoming even more important now. Now, what's interesting is you got people, let me add that for you, people like Corbin, Jeremy Corbin, standing up and saying, it's utterly disgraceful that Palestinians, or excuse me, that Parliament has not even been consulted. So not only did they not consult Congress, they didn't consult Parliament in the UK either. He says, when we learn from our mistakes, we realize that war is not the answer. Right? He called it a reckless act of escalation that will only cause more death and suffering. But you know why they don't care? Because he's an anti-Semite. See how that works? You know why he's totally not an anti-Semite? Because he's never made that. He's never made anti-Semitic remarks. They just go, oh, wink, wink. He, he said this, but he meant that. It's the same BS they do against anybody, including myself. Do you know why they actually call him that? Because of things like this. Because he stands up and says, you're a murdering criminal. You're a racist. Nope, doesn't work anymore. You're murdering children in Gaza. You hate Jews. No, we don't. 
We're in fact defending them just like we're defending anybody. That's why they do that. He was never what they pretended he was. Just like Roger Waters wasn't. It's such a it's, it's such an absurd claim. Or by the way, people like Donald Trump or RFK Jr., who are aggressively, wildly pro-Zionist, and that's how they drove them into being even more so by calling them anti-Semites because they said something somebody argued was. Even though they're so stupidly pro-Zionist that they're ruining their careers over it. That's specifically Harfke Jr. My point is that that is how they play this game, but they've lost control of that because nobody's buying it anymore. Now, one of the part that we recently covered, the, the and this goes to the larger multi-front war that they're desperately driving, is that Iran was bombed. They bombed the ceremony in regard to Soleimani's funeral, or, you know, the, the memorial, and, and murdered all sorts of innocent people. And what happened? It was ISIS. ISIS randomly said, we did it, but in a very uncharacteristic way, at a time they usually don't do it, at a time frame later that took longer than usual, and even used statements and framing in words that they've never used before. And Freddie Pontoin breaks down the fact that he believes it's obvious this was an Israeli regime mastermind attack behind it. Now, you can read this for yourself. It's, it's just his opinion, and he makes that clear. He made great points, though, about, like, for instance, using the term Iran instead of another term that basically stands for the country of Persia, which is historically what they've used. So there's a lot going on here that seems to indicate, yet again, that not only that we should, for that F's sake, know by now, ISIS is a tool of the Israeli and U.S. apparatus. Let's not forget that literally Israeli secret intelligence services is what they call themselves. It stands for ISIS. It's not a joke. It's a real thing. Now, whether you think that means anything or not is irrelevant because you can prove that they funded, worked with, give them medical treatment in the Golan Heights. And then all of a sudden, every time, by the way, it happens every time, ISIS jumps up and attacks the enemies of Israel right in the peak moment. It's just so ridiculous. And on the memorial of Soleimani, really? You know, it's the, the whole point is Soleimani was the person predominantly the one fighting ISIS. That's exactly the point. As they attack him, claiming he's ISIS or the Hamas is ISIS while they're working with ISIS. It's painfully stupid. People are finally beginning to pay attention. My point in showing you this is to realize they're in every way driving this into reality. And the U and Biden's clumsy action, I mean, whether Biden's even calling the shots or not is a different conversation, but Biden's administration is just sleepwalking into it. Now, the point I made before to finish the segment, just to demonstrate for you, and this is, I, I could give you 500 examples of this, how the very people that the U.S. government are backing, at the very least, are the current enemy of a NATO ally. But on top of that, realizing that the very people that they always back, and we know this through Obama's administration to this very moment, are not moderate rebels, they're the terrorists. We know this, guys. It's not even a secret. Even the corporate media was forced to call this out. Turkish-led airstrikes on the PKK in northern Iraq after suicide bomb attack in Ankara. Excuse me, I think I said Syria, but it, it's constantly overlapped. The point is that this is Turkey bombing U.S.-backed entities. Why? Because they're suicide bombing people in, in Turkey. Suicide bombing. You know what? You, you know what? I keep making that point that the idea that we, the, the classic understanding we have in our minds of suicide bombings, guys, that comes from their actions. That comes from the very people that have been armed and funded and driven to reality by groups like Israel. That's where that, in fact, goes to all the way back to if you look at the origins of Zionism. Not to say that other people haven't done something st the same way, but this mindset we have that it's the enemies of Israel doing that, I, I don't believe that. I think it's obvious where that originated from. 
And in this case, the ones the U.S. government are backing are using the same tactic against Turkey. It's crazy. Now, you can read the article for yourself on your own news. My point is just to simply show you that the YPG is simply the Syrian branch of the Turkish, of, of, the, of the PKK and has been an enduring problem for the U.S. relationship with Turkey, a NATO ally. By the way, a NATO ally that is aggressively saying Israel's a murderous regime. It's crazy how all this works out. But at the end of the day, the main point, the one standing up and screaming freedom and democracy are the ones that are actively arming and funding and working with the worst of the worst of the worst. Every classic big bad guy in history was 30 seconds before it, a chief ally of the U.S. From Saddam Hussein to Osama bin Laden, it's the same difference. Why we don't seem to be able to acknowledge that is something quite incredible to me. Now, we are at about two hours and 36 minutes, so I think we should probably be able to get through most of this. I want to start with, and this is pretty much just to sum up the, the follow-up, which I wasn't even sure if I was going to do, to be quite honest, because it's, it, their response was childishly ridiculous. And we'll go through it. it. It's just staggering. how, And then even more so, it's almost embarrassing, the delusional response by people who just can't let this go any other way acting like they destroyed the South African. Like they didn't even address the arguments that were presented. It's like they went into a debate. Hey, hey, there you go. It's just like Laura Loomer and Dave Smith. Instead of actually debating, they were just yelling talking points that made no bearing on the actual conversation. Same thing. But we're going to first go over some points that show you that this has always been obvious. Now, this one goes back to October 23rd. I mean, there was just so many of these examples that I don't even think I saw this one at the time. This is, this is uh, a member of the Knesset, like the Congress, saying about Gaza, without hunger and thirst among the Gazan people, not Hamas, but the civilians they claim they're fighting for, right? Without hunger and, you know, sort of starving them of, you know, and, and making them die of thirst, we will not be able to recruit collaborators, right? So we need to make them suffer so we can co- co- coerce innocent people to doing what we want. Because we're good guys, right? It says we will not be able to recruit intelligence. We will not be able to bribe people with food and drink, medicine, in order to obtain intelligence. And we know that finding the abductees is a supreme and super important goal alongside the goals of fighting. Nope, you're wrong about that. In fact, since that moment, they've shown you they would probably want to kill them. At the very least, they don't care about them. But just that's not even the main point. She's quite frankly, literally telling you, we need to starve these people so we can co- contort that into our own benefit. But, but, but we're trying to save them all because they're innocent. I mean, guys, they're just, it's just so egregiously obvious. Everything about it. Here's another example. Tiberius writes, Israel at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. They would tell people to flee our bombs if we wanted to commit genocide. Israel in practice. Nope, not even remotely. They tell you, go to this neighborhood, and then they bomb it, even according to Sky News. Let me see if I can grab this one, too. Include that one, because I think this one's more powerful for most people, because it's it's a New York Times investigation that was then followed up on by Haaretz. I mean, it covers every possible angle. By no means does that mean that you should blindly accept whatever they say. But for the people that typically you know, push back against the fake news, it's kind of hard to ignore a New York Times investigation that's overlapped with Haaretz, a Israeli outlet, and Sky News pointing out the same thing, which is that they used the most destructive bombs on the areas they pretended were safe. They said, go there, and then they bombed them. Here's another example of that. Sky News telling you that's exactly what happened. 
Here's the main article. Israel said they could go to this neighborhood. Then it was hit. You see, now, I'm starting to get the sense that they're not going to be held accountable, even at the ICJ, and I'll show you why. But you have to understand how incredible that is with how much evidence we have. Real-time statements, their their own actions, their own programs, their own politicians telling you. And yet, we act like it's not the most clear and obvious thing in the world. You can't bomb the safe locations and then pretend like you gave them an option. And on top of that, her point is that they keep saying, well, we dropped leaflets and we did all, you know, and this is why I'll include this. Well, first of all, again, as we're pointing to all the examples of them literally violating international law, Haaretz posted this on January 11th. It is not, says the Israeli Jewish outlet, it is not anti-Semitic to urge Israel to respect international humanitarian law or to condemn gross violations against Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. So does that make the Israeli platform anti-Semitic now? Because they don't, you know, see, it's just this broad stroke statement that they apply to anybody, anywhere, including Jews, including Israelis, which should probably start to show you that it's not real. Not the sense that racism doesn't exist, but the allegation they lob at anybody that goes against their narrative that they're racist is not true. Now, the point, as I've made clear many times, as they keep trying to pretend, no, we dropped leaflets. No, we told them to get out of the way. They're lying about that too, as Amnesty International has already proven. They did a three-day investigation just between the bombings of October 7th and 12th. On October 20th, they posted it. Damning evidence of war crimes as Israeli attacks wipe out entire families. And again, the point is the same. This investigation found that in every one of the five cases they looked at, in just that three-day period, they either failed to warn people were so indiscriminate with the attacks that it didn't matter anyway, or they deliberately targeted civilians. In one case, they said they told one guy on the street and then bombed right after that. And yet they'll stand up and tell you we gave them weeks to get out of the way. They're, everything they're doing at the ICJ is just blatant dishonesty. Now, here's some important uh, breakdowns before we get into what ultimately happened yesterday. This is Palestinian Ahoy, a, a website looks like in Spanish. But I just, I just thought it was kind of a good kind of quick encapsulation of what ultimately happened. Now, it says the summary of the first hearing of the genocide case brought by South Africa against Israel at the International Court of Justice. South Africa demands that the International Court of Justice impose provisional measures on Israel to stop its attack on Gaza. The Palestinian people have been deprived of the right to self-determination since 1948. It's basically just what's being presented at the case. Israel's laws were designed to impose apartheid on the Palestinians. And just since we mentioned it, it's important that we remember that this is definitely real, that apartheid has been proven and stated by Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Betselem, you know, and just anybody's honest pre- observation of what's happening. And from the beginning, it says, we in South Africa have been aware of the genocidal crimes committed by Israel against the people of Palestine. The destruction and violence did not begin on October 7th, but for decades before. Palestinians have been subject to persecution and Israel has imposed a siege on Gaza for years. Israel subjugated Gaza over the past 96 days to what was described as the most intense bombing campaign in the history of modern warfare. And again, in many cases, using the most destructive bombs in areas they designated as safe. Palestinians are uh, 70% of the victims of these bombings are women and children. How do you get away from a stat like that? It's incredible. And some 7,000 Palestinians are still missing out of the rubble. And that's an estimate. Palestinians are killed if they do not leave. 
in the places to which they were displaced and on the roads that Israel claims are safe. Guys, all these are points that are just impossible to ignore. Now, it's not just because it's stated there. We just proved it to you and based on their own statements. These bodies are buried in common graves. In the first few weeks, Israel dropped 2,000 bombs in areas that it designated as safe. And this is being presented in the court. More than 1,800, more than 1,800 families lost more than one of their members. God, it's disgusting. Hundreds of families were wiped out as a result of the Israeli bombings. Fathers, sons, mothers, aunts, aunt, uncles died together. This killing, which is committed intentionally, spares no one, not even babies. Israel imposed evacuation orders on entire hospitals with even with everything they contained, including babies, cut off water, fuel, and food, basic necessities to force displacement, even with, with babies in incubators. The Israeli army celebrates the destruction of towns and cities. They post it all the time, and soldiers film the scenes of bombings and destruction of homes, towns, and cities, and want to restore settlements of the ruins of the... Uh, it, they want to create the illegal settlements, and they keep stating this publicly. Again, it just says it, it even forced displacement of babies and incubators. The intent to commit genocide is clear in Israel's behavior, in attacking Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, through the use of weapons that cause widespread destruction. The evidence in this case is even clearer than the Gambia versus Myanmar, Myanmar case, which was a big case. Shoot women, children, men, prevent the entity of humanitarian entry of humanitarian aid and displacement. All of this is sufficient evidence of Israel's intention to commit genocide against the Palestinians in Gaza. Israeli political and military leaders consistently said they intend to commit genocide, and these speeches were echoed by soldiers in the Gaza Strip. A Knesset member called for erasing Gaza from the world. One of them even called to nuke the entire area. Remember that? How are you pretending like you don't want to kill everybody when you call for a nuke? An army minister gallant announced the imposition of a complete blockade on the Strip, calling them all human animals. When talking about Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, imposing a complete siege on them and cutting off electricity and water and everything else. The language of demonization is clearly in the speeches of the Israeli government. Not in their independent capacity, but even coming from their stated pulpits for, in the government. The intention to destroy Gaza has reached the highest levels in Israel, as stated by President Hezog, Herzog, excuse me, who said that these missiles were aimed at the Gaza Strip and stated the fighting would continue until civilians and the population are destroyed. He said there is no one innocent there. Genocide rhetoric is common in the Israeli Knesset. As I played, I'll probably, maybe I'll end with that today, as I played it many times in the past, but uh, the member of, of the, um, I, I, what was it again? I'm forgetting the name. Member of Parliament for Ireland made these statements on the record about what they've said over the years. I'll find it at the end. I feel like it's right here. I'm missing it. But, you know, we've played that so many times. Oh, there it is. Just reading off all the things that they've stated publicly long before October 7th. And I'll, 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 remember, I'll remember to play it at the end. It's common for them. Knesset members called for the destruction of Gaza and said the killing of women and children should not be seen as the killing of innocent people. They want That one woman even said the, the children of Gaza brought it upon themselves. And yet they have the nerve to stand up and pretend that they're not calling for genocide. It says, we are witnessing a, witnessing a catastrophe in Palestine that surpasses the catastrophe of 1948. That's the crazy part. The original Nakba. And this one follows up and continues the same, one of the second post on the same thread. Israeli soldiers believe their measures in Gaza are acceptable. 
And a soldier posted scenes of the destruction of the Al-Azhar University and quoted, Once upon a time, there was a university in Gaza. The soldiers believe their actions are acceptable because the destruction of Gaza was brought up in government deliberations. Exactly what they pretend isn't true. Israeli soldiers danced and sang in Gaza with the intention of committing genocide in the Strip, and one soldier boasted of having destroyed 15 houses. These soldiers follow the orders of their commanders. And again, remember, bring down buildings just to bring down buildings? An Israeli soldier said, quote, go eliminate them and kill them. If your neighbor's an Arab, go and kill him. That was the 95-year-old reservist, right, who comes from the Lehigh Party, which is a terrorist organization that tried to align itself with Nazi Germany twice. And he's, he's one of the oldest surviving reservist that stems all the way back to that point. It says, we will destroy the houses one by one. We will drop bombs on them and annihilate them. Israeli decision makers called for a comprehensive bombing and talked about the use of nuclear weapons. Netanyahu's genocidal intent was obvious to Israeli soldiers who redoubled their efforts on several occasions and were filmed doing so. Israel may claim that its officials' words were taken out of context, but the repetition of these statements and the actions of their soldiers on the ground make it impossible to deny. Israel turned Gaza into a concentration camp where genocide is taking place. What is happening in Gaza is not simply a conflict between two parties. Israel for years considered itself above and beyond the law. It still does, rapidly realizing that might not be the case anymore. It is increasingly evident that entire areas of Gaza are being wiped off the map. UN General Assembly resolutions calling for humanitarian ceasefire have been ignored. 48 women and 117 children die or are at risk of dying every day. Apparently that number is 200 and something every single day. When just everybody, people being killed. More than 10 children in Gaza lose a limb every day. The acts of slaughter and destruction demonstrate Israel's genocide in Gaza, and there's an urgent need for temporary measures to prevent irreparable damage. The slaughter of Gaza and its people must stop. Hundreds of professors and academics, including university presidents, were killed in Israeli bombings. Almost all universities were destroyed as a result of the bombing of Gaza. Thousands of university and school students were deprived of an education. About 85% of Gaza's population was forced to flee, abandon their homes, and were subjected to bombings in places where they were asked to go. Now, 85%, that very well could just be the amount of people that didn't get killed in the bombings. Most everybody's been displaced. The people of Gaza are weak after 16 years of military siege, and Israel is currently hindering the arrival of food and basic materials. Israel pushed the inhabitants of Gaza to the brink of famine, just like in Yemen. The Gaza issue was a moral failure of the international community and will have repercussions not only on the people, but also on future generations who will never forget these moments of hell, these months of hell. Israel says that it does not target the Palestinian people and that its objective is to destroy Hamas. It cannot be argued that the months of bombings and cuts of water, food, and electricity to a population are persecution by Hamas. South Africa demand the International Court of Justice impose provisional measures on Israel to stop its attacks on Gaza. The delegation emphasizes that the mass killing of Palestinians in Gaza formed a calculated pattern of behavior on the part of Israel that indicates genocidal intent. Now, understanding that all of that was presented in calculating fashion with all of the receipts, and then Israel goes on to not address any of it, not really, Essentially saying that what they did was so bad that somehow makes sense, or that you don't have the right to do this in general, or ultimately trying to act like Hamas is responsible for anything. None of that changes the dynamic of what they presented and the reality that they're accusing them, not 
because that didn't happen, but because whatever happened first, you're still committing genocide. And I don't know why they didn't understand that. I mean, maybe they did. Now, what's really frustrating is you'll notice, as we pointed out then, that all the corporate media completely ignored the first day. They didn't even talk about it. You didn't see it on the front pages, nothing. Then all of a sudden, as Muhammad points out, surprise, surprise, Sky News and Fox News are suddenly live broadcasting Israel's defense to what they said the other day without ever showing you what they accused them of. Maybe this is why a bunch of these ridiculous people were like, that was, they destroyed them. Well, maybe you would think that had you actually, if you, well, the point is, had you cared to watch the first part or been allowed to, you would realize that this stuff is scathingly obvious and their response didn't even touch it. But I said, funny how these corporate outlets couldn't be bothered to cover this yesterday when evidence was being presented for Israel committing genocide. But now that all you will hear is Israel screaming their narrative at you with righteous indignation, they suddenly cover it because they're cowards. And Edward Snowden pointed out the same thing. No matter your politics, it should appall you that the media outlets which claim to care about the most, care the most about misinformation suppressed coverage of South Africa's case against the Gaza genocide, but fully covered Israel's defense the next day, intentionally denying you the full co- the context, the story. I mean, that, that's just deliberately deceptive and, mis- and, and manipulative. Like they made a conscious choice to ignore it. And whether or not you agree with the allegation, this was the highest court. This is a world story. And they just ignored it. Now, Kim Iverson points out, well, first on the second, she wrote, Israel's defense will be the Holocaust and October 7th. So therefore, they are allowed to commit their own genocide, which is basically what they did. And she writes, Israel gets, this was on the 12th, gets three hours to defend itself in the ICJ. They asked for one hour of their defense to be the viewing of their edited and manipulative October 7th video that they've been showing to selected audiences, some of which come out and say it didn't prove anything including Owen Jones from The Guardian. But the ICJ rejected their request, saying, and it's important, that the particular court case is against Israel, not against Hamas. So right out of the gate, they told them, it's not about whether you think Hamas did something so bad that this has to happen. What you're doing is a crime, regardless of how you think it's justified. It's the same as it's ever been. But what did they do? Well, they came in and they said, Hamas, 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 over and over and over. Hamza Sadah writes, I did Hamas counter on my stream while reacting to Israel's response. He counted Hamas 137 times. 137 times. That's nearly one Hamas being said every minute while they were talking, despite the fact that they were told that it had nothing to do with Hamas. Now, that doesn't mean you couldn't make the argument that there's some level of overlap to the fact that, you know, here's why we felt this was necessary but not to make it literally Hamas did this, Hamas did that. Here's Hamas's reasoning. Here's what they said about us. They want to kill all the Jews. It does not change the fact that you're breaking the law with what you do in response to it. It's just hilariously stupid. Now, here's one of these videos of somebody making fun of it. And, you know, to a degree, well, you know, ultimately it's hard, you know, there should be, there, there should be a level of decorum in the sense of, you know, we're talking about human lives here, but what they're doing to cover up their murder, it feels, it, it feels, necessary to ridicule in my opinion
by Hamas, 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 if Hamas, Hamas, by Hamas, Hamas, of Hamas, of Hamas, 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 Hamas. Now, for those in the podcast, she was eating hummus every time he said that and acting like that's what he was saying because they have they had this ridiculous tactic of Hamas. But either way, the point is that you're up there trying to make a defense against the case presented to you from South Africa. And it was stated very clearly that it was not about, it was not a, a, a case against Hamas. And yet that's what they did anyway. That shows you something, doesn't it? And as, and this is in context saying breaking, it is a matter of public record. He goes on to write or claims when he presented this, that South Africa enjoys close relations with Hamas. Who could have guessed? It's just that stupid. It's like saying you're racist and that's the best you got. The point is apparently now all of South Africa is working with Hamas. That's the only reason it's happening. This 30,000 strong group, if that inside of an open air prison in Gaza, and apparently they control everybody but Israel. I mean, it's just the dumbest thing in the world, guys. And I was going to go through this. I'll, I include, I'll include the full thing. It's about five hour video here. You can watch it all for yourself. I decided not to take the time to go through the individual things because quite frankly, it's real. it's obvious that this is illegitimate. But here is what Caitlin said. She says, yeah, yeah, the hospitals are Hamas, the ambulance are Hamas, the UN buildings are Hamas, South Africa is Hamas, everyone we don't like is Hamas. I mean, it's really that silly how dumb this has gotten. And I'll again, include this one, which I altered because this is one that said everyone I don't like is Hitler. And I just found some random cartoon about Hamas. Now it says everyone I don't like is Hamas. Same point, a child's guide to online political discussion because that's what they're doing. There's no evidence to the effect that South Africa has any influence by Hamas, but because they just want to lob the allegation. Now think about what that speaks to about the character of the people defending this at the International Court of Justice, that you'd be willing to stand up and make a broad allegation against an entire country that you have no evidence to back up. That's pathetic. And in that discussion, as he was doing his opening statements, he referenced a person named Raphael Lemkin, literally pointing to him as the person who coined the term genocide and using the argument to make a claim about why they're on the right side of history. Well, here's what Limkin Institute actually said about Israel. The Limkin Institute, and this is on the October 18th, uh, on October 18th, Limkin Institute calls on the International Criminal Court to indict Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for the crime of genocide in the light of siege of bombardment of Gaza and the many expressions of genocidal intent, especially as deleted tweet from the 17th where he wrote, this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle, and then deleted it. So think about how ridiculous it is that not only do they cite him, but they, while knowing that he's, that the Institute literally calls you out for your own genocide, it just, I mean, ultimately just shows you that this is desperation. Now here's Robert and Lakesh breaking down their, their defense for you. Here's Israel's current in, uh, international court of justice defense. But Hamas, look at random photos of aid. Hamas stole my paper. Hamas, Hamas, the Hamas. South Africa is Hamas, a genocide dispute. What dispute? But Hamas on October 7th. But Hamas, rockets. Israel has let some aid. But trust me, bro, but Hamas. It's just over and over and over. It's just the same, same responses with nothing to back it up. And, and uh, Nico House makes the same point. As, in the reference to South Africa is close with Hamas. He says, I'm confused. Let's just say... It's true that South African government has close relations with Hamas. Does that somehow mean Israel didn't kill kids, target hospitals and churches and refugee camps? 
He says, I don't think these people understand the assignment. It's just, it's perfect. They do. They just don't have anything else to do. They're desperate. It's crazy. Now, you know, you know who is very clearly on the record close with Hamas? Cutter. The very group that Israel has designated as off the off target, like we're not going to go after them, and even use them in lieu of Egypt as the me, the moderator with Hamas. They're literally protecting the leadership in Qatar. I mean, it's just so, everything about this is not what it seems. And then the the woman who went on to present after that literally made, this. I'm just going to show you the one, but there were multiple statements that were made that are provably false. Actually, I got two, I think. This one, that they didn't bomb hospitals. Hospitals have not been bombed. Rather, the IDF sends soldiers to search and dismantle military infrastructure, reducing damage and disruption. Indeed, the tunnel that sat directly under the main building in Shifa Hospital was exploded without damaging the building above. The IDF then withdrew from the hospital. I mean, you know, so do these people even care about any kind of due diligence? Or are they just blindly stating what Israel told them to say? You can quite literally prove that's not true. It's crazy. But I mean, that, so that was my point about what, when they, I just, oh, I don't think I included it. I just said, oh, so they're just going with lies then. <laughs> Interesting choice. I mean, I think about how crazy that is. And she even cites the Al-Ali hospital, which they went on to prove was Israel's missile. That was done by the AP, by corporate media. And so my point is they're just so blindly adherent to the narrative, even though most of this has been proven to be false. And yet, even still, people like Norman Finkelstein still argue that they're probably not going to win. Or rather that, you know, that Israel will get away with it. Now, here's Propaganda and Company again, pointing out eight pathetic arguments Israel made in court. Eight ways Israel tried defending itself in court. One, Israel claimed the court had no jurisdiction because there is no dispute between Israel and South Africa. Two, Israel claims that genocidal statements don't count unless they are made from within the war cabinet of the government. Third, Israel says that they also made non-genocidal statements. Four, Israel says that they have a judicial system to hold their own military accountable if mistakes were made. Five, South Africa supports Hamas and therefore has no credibility. Six, the ICJ can not hold Hamas accountable, so it's unfair to hold Israel accountable. 7. Hamas operates within civilian areas, therefore Israel had to destroy all civilian infrastructure. 8. South Africa is only doing this to destroy Israel's reputation. There were other arguments made by Israel, all of them terrible. Which part of Israel's defense did you find to be the most ridiculous? Comment them below. Right, because, you know, we also said non-genocidal things, right? <laughs> so it can't be all bad. It really was pathetic. And guess what? In case you didn't see it, they literally alluded and straight up pointed to the 40 beheaded babies lie. They actually did that. They brought this forward and made the allegation that not only were babies burned alive, but they beheaded children. It did not happen. Not even according to the IDF. And yet here they are presenting a, one of the most egregiously false from the very beginning. That was the first one that was shown to be false. I, it's just unbelievable. And here's a video where not only did they try to, so this is um, South African minister, right? And they, 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 they tried to stand up and call her out for it. Like may, try, hoping that somehow being pushed to say it again, she would maybe back down a little bit. But listen to her response. Prepared to take a question. <laughs> honorable minister, are you prepared to take a question from the yes, honorable no, yeah, The honorable member can pose it. Hello? Did I, did, did I hear you correctly? 
saying that the atrocities that we are speaking about, the beheading of children, that those are fake news, that it's not true. Is that the position of the South African government? I want to ask you now. Yeah. No, it is evidence that has been provided by a range of non-governmental organizations, both in Israel and Palestine, because we don't only speak to Palestinians, we speak to peace-loving Israelis as well. And we know that there's a lot of fake news that attempts to cast Palestinians in a bad light. And it has been admitted, even from the White House spokesperson, that that statement that was made at the highest level was actually proven not to be factual. So, Honorable Member, I've responded to your question. And it's important, as I said at the start of my contribution, that when we speak on these matters, let us speak being honest and factual. The facts are the people of Palestine are denied the right to exist as human beings. They are denied the right to enjoy the freedoms and the rights we so love as South Africans. The right. Well done. But they just can't stop lying about it. Now, I'll include this. This is an, an interesting. I saw Orwell show this today. Zachary Foster, uh, who is the historian of Palestine, PhD in that regard, said, I'd like to draw attention to a project launched today called October 7th Fact Check. It's an attempt to fact check claims made by Israeli military to justify Israel's attempt to starve to death 2.2 million Palestinians in Gaza. It's actually pretty interesting. So it gives you the breakdown here, basically just saying it's created as a resource for, you know, the conflicting information. And it says that this certainly recognize that some of these things could end up being errors or blah, blah, blah. The point is continue to fill this with more information to, you know, make it the best you can. But the point is a lot of this has been proven. And I mean, look, I, I'll, I'll include this as well. The, the Haaretz investigation that quite literally calls most of these things fake, including 40 beheaded babies, the baby in the oven, the womb being cut open. I mean, it, it, these are categorically false. Now, on top of that, they now have a resource that is pretty, very well done. Now, even under the sexual violence category, it says continuing research. And you can break, it's very well done. There's a lot of you know, different accounts. And if you, if you look through all of it, it breaks it all down. Survivor accounts, and this is the one of the big points that no victims of rape have come forward publicly or to Israeli police. It's a fact. The secondary relayed through other people er, arguments, forensic evidence is not present because they never got it. That window was closed. The point is, it's still being investigated. But as that stands with what they have, and that, oh, that was the most important one actually, saying, I um, eyewitness accounts. No, it was this one here. saying that, which one was it? Basically, the point what I'm trying to find is the one that says that they've gotten, they have yet to get a single person to come out. Where was it? Son of a gun. Well, I don't want to try to read it off the top of my head. Either way, this is important. You guys should look it up yourselves. There was one that stood out to me on this that was saying, that they just have yet to con confirm any one of the kind of secondary allegations with any of the actual bodies or what they can prove with evidence from the IDF. And I just, it's so staggering to me how that can be the case. And yet still at this very point, they'll shout at anybody who doesn't blindly say this happened. I don't, it's not that I am trying to disprove, you know, a woman claiming she was abused. There's just nothing but the Israeli government claiming this happened with, at the, I mean, l more lacking evidence than anything I've ever seen. 
like in the sense of like any kind of real big discussion like this. All it comes down to is circumstantial evidence and people that have already been caught lying. This one, no released, yeah, uh, no released hostages have been claimed to be raped. Anyway, I'll let you guys read it for yourselves. The point was continuing research, but then the other things were all the claims that we know are false. 40 beheaded babies, confirmed false. Baby in the oven, confirmed false. And this is interesting. Attacks on ambulance, confirmed true. Babies hung on clotheslines, confirmed false. IDF using white phosphorus, confirmed true. You know, the one about the pregnant woman's stomach being cut open, confirmed to be false. Baby stabbed and thrown in the trash, confirmed false. Children taken hostage, confirmed true. Exactly. Same thing I've been saying. You have proven that they've committed crimes. But it's just, it's important. So follow up on that. The information is important to keep track of, and the facts do matter. Now, Rania also points out that Israel bombed its own people, as we know by now, as he has now even confirmed by Ynet News, in addition to the other discussions, because of the Hannibal Directive. And it's so obvious, given that Hamas simply didn't have the weapons to inflict the kind of damage that you're looking at right here. They just did not. It's not possible. Yet the U.S. corporate media continue to not only omit the obvious, they are blaming Hamas to justify an ongoing genocide. And Sam makes a great point. Part of the weakness of the South African case at the ICJ at the moment is that it made no mention of the Hannibal Directive, even though it's been admitted to by Israeli military, opening the door to the settler colonial state pretending to care about its own citizens. That's important, guys, because once you prove that they seem to not care about literally anybody, it makes that much more obvious. Here is Norman Finkelstein Finkelstein breaking down where he thinks this is going to go. And it's it's, it's sadly that he thinks that there's too too much political influence, as always, and I sadly agree. So on the merits, I would say, to use the language it's being used, they make a plausible case. But these things are never decided by the merits. They're not decided by the law. They're decided by politics. You can't get around that. And so what do you have now? The ICJ consists of 15 justices or judges. They, uh, we use justice for our Supreme Court. They call them judges. There are 15 judges. The 15 judges comprise the Security Council and 10 other states. So Russia, China, the US, the UK, and France. Okay? The per five permanent members, they have representatives on the ICJ. So you think to yourself, oh, great. Okay, we lose with the US for sure. We lose with the UK for sure. France is a question mark, given the statements it's been making about what's going on in Gaza. I would call it a question mark. Uh, And then we say, oh, great. We have one question mark, and then we have Russia and China. And you think, okay, we have Russia and China on our side. Well, Russia is now being challenged or accused of genocide in Ukraine, and that's a pending case in the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So do they want to open up the Pandora's box of that genocide convention, which might... He, he meant Russia right there, by the way. Not, or he meant... Uh, hold on. ...criminal court. So Russia is now being challenged or accused of genocide in Ukraine, and that's a pending case in the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So do they want to open up the Pandora's box of that genocide convention, which might back... Either way, I must have missed it. I think I thought he accidentally said... China when he meant Russia, or in any case, the point is obviously we're talking about Russia in, in the allegations about Ukraine. Fire and be used against them. Very unlikely. China. Well, as everybody knows, China is being accused of genocide against the Uyghurs. So do they want to open up the Pandora's box of the genocide convention and it's used against them? I would say very unlikely. So 
right now we have one of five, which is France, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Then Germany's on this year. They vote for it. They be worse than Israel on it. They would vote for the genocide. Yeah, we agree it's genocide, but we're for it. Right, exactly. Then Uganda, which always votes with Israel. Don't ask me why. It's on. So we have four. I'm, uh, probably will not vote for its plausibility. Then Germany. Then Uganda. So that's six. Morocco is on. Morocco will vote. I think yes. It's a plausible case. And a few others. It'll be very tough. They need eight votes. They need eight votes. If you want to bring it up now, are you in front of the screen. Uh, yeah. So just go International Court of Justice. Justice. Uh, ju judges today. Judges today. So America, forget helpless cause. Uh, Russian, I would say unlikely. Slovakia, maybe a yes. Slovakia, France, I would say 50-50. So we have two. Morocco, I say a yes. So we have three. Somalia, probably a yes. That will be four. Um, China, probably a no or an abstention. Uganda, a no. Let's continue. Uh, India, well, since Modi is committing genocide against Muslims, I, I would say a no. And he's close with uh, Netanyahu. Right. Uh, Jamaica, maybe a yes. Maybe a yes. Lebanon, a yes. Japan is so terrified of the United States, I would call it a no. Germany, I would call it a no. Australia, no, 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 no. Brazil, definitely a yes. Oh, I, I you got, got seven? I got six and a half because we don't know half. about friends. Okay. I would get seven. That would be my guess. Yeah. All we need is one to flip to reach eight. It's hard to get one to right. flip. So, you know, interesting. You know, it, but it's seeming, I mean, that it never used to be that. I mean, it was much, if that's accurate, I argue it was at one point a lot harder. You know, if you have six, you're right. I mean, you can argue like maybe one has actually changed his mind or maybe there's more political dealings behind the scenes. In any case, it's not that as difficult as it might've seemed in the past. But sadly, I also have the same impression that far too many of these people, including one of the judges I believe is Israeli, is ultimately going to push this in a direction that's political. Despite all of the evidence that is unreal. Now, on top of that, some of the stuff they've been presenting is manipulative. For example, and I've seen this posted by many different, uh, this has been posted by many different official accounts. Israeli defense displayed a call, a collage of what they say are hostages in Gaza at the ICJ. And the collage included multiple duplicates. You can look for yourself. And how do you, you don't do that by accident. And on top of that, if we had more time, you can go through and look at each individual. And there's people in here that you can see that have already been killed by Israeli bombings. The point is, it's just about their narrative. And one of the largest points, which I made in the beginning, South African Minister of Justice has a statement in regard to what they did in response. And he simply says, Israel failed to respond to what we presented. As Nico says, I don't think they understood the assignment. And we adhere to the facts of the law and the evidence we presented. Israel seems unable to command the actions of its soldiers and the statements of its officials cannot be ignored. According to the Genocide Convention, nothing justifies the way Israel is waging war. It's important. But so that's even more important if they still don't have, if they somehow win this, it just shows you that this was never genuine to begin with. On top of that, one of these arguments they keep making about the Rafa crossing it says, Israel did not prevent aid from entering Gaza, and Egypt is fully responsible for the Rafah crossing. That's what Israel was claiming. It's not true. Right? Israel has been actively and, and definitively, even according to a Egypt, continuing to manipulate the, the flow of goods. I mean, actually, I think that says it right here. Yeah, Egypt slams Israeli lies 
as UN, at UN court regarding Rafa A. They say Egypt has denied allegations by Israel brought to the International Court of Justice that Cairo is somehow responsible for preventing the entry of humanitarian aid. But anybody with a brain can already see this. It says, Anne said what Israel defense team relayed to the ICJ about the crossing were lies. That's coming from a group that in Egypt that is involved with the crossing. He said in a statement that the Israeli top officials have confirmed many times, as we've shown you as well. That's what, It's like they, they think we can't see their public statements. Confirmed many times, quote, since the start of the aggression on Gaza, that they will not allow aid to enter the Gaza Strip, particularly fuel, because this is part of the war that their state is waging against the Strip. And yet then they come up and lie to the International Court of Justice. Rashwan noted Egypt's sovereignty extends only to the Egyptian side of the Rafa crossing, while the other side of the Gaza, here it is, is subject to the actual occupation authority. To argue that somehow Hamas has control of that is so willfully ignorant. It's naive. It's provably false. He reiterated that Egypt on several occasions has stressed that the Rafa crossing from the Egyptian side is open without interruption and repeatedly urged Israel not to prevent the flow of aid, and they've continued to do so. Now, John Cusack writes, South Africa can't win in The Hague. Sadly, it's starting to look that way, but, and I agree with this, they've already won, presenting the truth to the world. I mean, the, 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 the idea that so many more people have gotten to see what they're doing here, it's powerful, and it does have an effect. Sadly, I do think that we might end up losing this in that way, but there is a win still to be had here. And I think it's having an effect on, you know, maybe not the immediacy of the bombing on Palestinians, but the awareness that will eventually drive action. I'll include the full thing for you to watch here. Last few points I want to include is just how delusional the response is to this. As this person says, the Israeli legal team dismantled today South Africa's case. I mean, again, they didn't even address Africa's case. They just deflected and, and manipulated as they're saying, one false accusation after another. You're proving this. They're presenting the evidence that proves unequivocally that they said what you claim they did. But they just go, lies, you're racist. Or that you won somehow. South Africa tried to use the people of Gaza as legal human shields to protect Hamas's crimes. I mean, seriously? So you just, you can't even think of new arguments? Human shields, Hamas. Apparently that works. So now you got... South Africa using human shields, but metaphorically to protect crimes. I mean, you can't even think past your own shoelaces here. This is pathetic. That's what they claimed. And I said, wow, that is a delusional thing. On top of that, you got things like this. This person says, case closed. Actually, Israel isn't on trial at the Hague. The South African government is. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) That's not even that smart, guys. That's just stupid. You're just going, I know you are, but what am I? Right? That's what you got. And apparently they're winning with that kind of statement. Well, here is also the best they've got. And this is the kind of thing they do as we predicted what happened. You're racist. You hate Jews or you're terrorists, right? That's what's been happening. Eli David says, you can't make this up. A renowned terrorist is sitting at the bench of South Africa at the International Court of Justice. Right? So what he's saying is, this is the general director of al Haq. And saying that he was recently announced as people took part of the de- basically saying that this person is a terrorist because they support the actions of what happened on October 7th. And he, regardless, the main point for me is whether or not you think that person is somehow a terrorist and understand that what they call terrorism is pretty much anybody that resists their terrorism. Either way, 
Why would this make any difference to the allegations being presented with evidence about Israel's actions? Because all they can do is deflect and point other ways. But Hamas, but October 7th, but you're a terrorist. Well, even if you're accurate about all that, it doesn't change the fact that your actions are terrorism. And that's the whole point they were trying to make. And here's, this is what gets, this is what gets even more ridiculous. These are public statements made by people supporting what Israel's doing. Literally says, we are being sued by a nation of monkeys for crimes against us. 2024. Britain and Hebrew. Here's another one. It's important to note that Africans are a people of slaves and a slave is invalid for testimony. Monkeys, liars, supporters of terrorism. Please name them. Oh, great. Clearly, they, they respect the process, right? Or are they just all racist because they support apartheid? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Now, there's other points here. The UN aid chief said he was deeply alarmed by recent statements by Israeli ministers about plans to encourage the mass transfer. You know exactly what Netanyahu just came up and stated was not true, even though they're publicly saying it every chance they get. There's a lot of it. Now, here is the other thing that I just can't believe. I mean, I can, but so it, it was so obvious that what happened there was not in their favor, right? So just like with the WikiLeaks discussion or, or COVID-19 and don't, not doing your own research, here comes an Israeli uh, Israeli representative going, don't think or listen or or hear, don't listen to what they have to say. Com- commenting on Israel's crisis due to the genocide case in the ICJ. May Golan, Israel's women's advancement minister, wrote, quote, don't bite your nails, stop staring at the screens and stop following live updates. <laughs> Just ignore everything because it's not true. Hashtag don't look up, right? I don't care what Lebanese, Somalian, South African, Russian, Jamaican, Ugandan, and Chinese think about my right to self-defense. Gone are those days. So pretty much, I don't care if everyone in the world thinks we're committing genocide. It's all self-defense. Well, there's an old saying, right? And what's more likely that you're right and the rest of the world is wrong or the other way around? Certainly sometimes that can be the case. Point is, all she's saying is, stomp your feet, plug your ears and close your eyes because they're all liars and racist. And of course, even crazier, literally while they're being accused of genocide in front of the ICJ, they carried on their genocide and more aggressively bombed many different civilian locations, killing lots of Gaza children, but totally not genocide while you're being accused of genocide. And right after this, because I think clearly they were aware of how this did not go in their favor, they once again shut down all of the internet and all of the telecommunications across Gaza. Yet another example of collective punishment the very thing that they will scream about if Iran does, but they do it, it's all because of freedom and and democracy. As they wrote after the humiliation at the ICJ, the Israeli regime probably concluded that it's best to continue the Gaza genocide in silence. And lastly, and there were some other points I was going to get into, but I'll save it for next time. I just want to show you that they are continuing to find ways to destroy deals that are even being presented possibly by the Hamas side including deals that they aren't even publicly saying they really want, but while apparently, according to even Atlantic Council, are behind the scenes trying to make happen. And even Egypt is trying to get back involved and trying to make them find some kind of a deal for no for ceasefire and full exchange, which is what Hamas keeps trying to offer. Israel keeps denying. And then right about when there was about to be another deal, even though it wasn't very public, they assassinated the leader in Lebanon, in Beirut. And then that became the reason for why this all stopped. See how that works? 
Now, realize that you could argue, well, they told they said they would go after Hamas, except in Qatar, though, except in the main location of the leadership where their offices are supported by Qatar and Qatar's involved with the mediation process. But let's pretend like that all makes sense. The bottom line is they are trying to keep this going because they know they've lost. I think that's very obvious. Now, we'll leave it there. About 3.23. It's not too bad. I knew it would be a long show today, but thank you for tuning in. A lot to cover. Still a lot to cover, even as we speak right now. So we'll do our best to continue to stay up on these conversations, whether it's in medical freedom or any other you know, vein of conversation. If you'd like to continue to support our work, we need your help. As always, trying to grow, trying to expand, trying to just maintain what we're currently doing and with a donation-based model. You know, there's a level of insecurity there, right? Where we need your support every moment and every day. Otherwise, we won't exist anymore. Now, for a long time doing this, and even still, I sometimes just don't feel in the mood to say it, I never used to even express this. I hate it. I hate, I hate doing this. But the point is that I've recognized clearly that, you know, the more that we express this, the more that people recognize it's needed, and it does help us grow. So as always, if you'd like to support the platform, there's links down below. Supporting us through our autonomy program or through our Stripe or our, uh, our donation portal on the website or our Substack. I just just put out an article today in regard to one of the recent um, appeal clips that we put out. Any one of these things support this platform and let us continue to grow and you know find new avenues for truth. So, first thing, share the work. Get this out there. Talk with people. Express your concerns. Let people know what you think. But if you can find a way to support us for one dollar a month or more. It goes a long way on the recurring platform on the website goes on for a long time. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for continuing to stand up for people that don't have a voice. As always question, everything come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. This is the defense minister, Moshe Yalon, uh, talking just a couple of weeks ago. Israel is going to hurt Lebanese civilians to include kids of the family. We went through a very long discussion We did it then, we did it in the Gaza Strip, we are going to do it in any round of hostilities in the future. That's the Defence Minister. Uh, This is the uh, uh, Military Chief of Staff, Benny Gantz. The next round of violence will be worse and see this suffering increase. He headed up the military assaults uh, on Gaza, the last uh, two. This is the Minister for Education in the Netanyahu government. There will never be a peace plan with the Palestinians. I will do everything in my power to make sure they never get a state. He also said, if you catch terrorists, you simply have to kill them. I've killed a lot of Arabs in my life, and there's no problem with that. Uh, This is the Minister for Justice. Palestinians are all enemy combatants. This also includes the the mothers of the martyrs. They should follow their sons. Nothing would be more just. They should go, as should the physical homes in which they, are, which they raised the snakes. Otherwise, more little snakes will be raised there. That's the Israeli Minister for Justice in the last few months. The Israeli Minister for, uh, Deputy Minister for Defense. Palestinians are beasts. They are not human. Uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs. C.P. Hotley, this is the last one. My position is that between the sea and the Jordan River, there needs to be one state only, the state of Israel. There is no place for any agreement of any kind that discusses the concession of Israeli sovereignty over lands conquered in 1967. 
Now, these are the official statements of several ministers of the current government of Israel. In one case, actually advocating genocide of all Palestinians, including children, and calling them snakes. Now, can I ask you, Taoiseach, uh, do you not think that if we're defining terrorism, that is the language and thinking of terrorists? That it is absolutely unacceptable in civilized politics, in civilized international relations, for the heads of government of a state that we carry on normal relations with and who you met in Paris to advocate those sort of views when we know they have also led on to the deaths of thousands of Palestinians, uh, innocent men, women and children. What have you to say, Taoiseach, about those sort of views being expressed by the Israeli government?